A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to the True Detective Podcast, where the lore hounds your guides to the weirdness of the long night. I'm David. I'm John, and this is our coverage for Season 4, Episode 3 of True Detective Night Country on HBO Max. We're going to start off with our spoiler-filled hot takes, and then we're going to discuss some odds and ends. We'll take a quick break, and then we'll get into a full scene-by-scene breakdown of the episode, followed by some listener feedback. We have press screeners for this show, so we're going to be posting these podcasts right after the episode is aired every Sunday night at 10 p.m. Eastern. But we do want to enjoy the mystery of the show along with everybody else. We're only recording one episode ahead, usually on the Wednesday prior to the episode. Right. So this means you can still send in your feedback each week and uh, you can send emails to truedetective at thelorehounds.com or you can head over to our contact page on our website and there... There's a contact form and a voicemail. We've also got a Discord set up where we've got a full channel set up uh, episode by episode so you can talk freely without having to use spoilers. We even have a live chat that we open up uh, every evening at about 8.45 p.m. And then we close it off at about, again, around 10.15. So if you like to second screen your experiences and you want to chat with other folks uh, while the show is live, uh, nine to 10 o'clock on the Eastern time zone. Join us there. It's a lot of fun. Check us out on Patreon. Subscribers get early and ad free access to all of our podcasts, but they also get David's detectives notebook where you can go onto his notion page. He puts character guides and clues and all these wild sources. We it, it's been a big hit, David. I don't, I don't know if you know that, but I, you know, uh, the, the, the downside is that notion doesn't show me, like, I don't get the little hit mm, counter like we had back in internet 1.0 web, website yeah. 1.0. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, people seem to be enjoying it. So that makes me happy. Yeah. The, uh, you know, we, we've been getting a few patrons coming in for the season and, mm-hmm. uh, somebody even emailed us and was like, Hey, I having some trouble accessing it. How do I get it? So I'm, I'm glad people are coming for the detective notebook because you, you've been doing a great job putting it together. I, I referenced it tonight when I was watching nice. the episode Okay, very because good. I was like, I don't remember if this person's this person name, is. you know what it was? It was somebody with two last names. It was Ray Clark. I was like, is, okay. is that the same person? Right. And, uh, it, it was thanks Got to it. the detective's notebook. I was able to track it down anyway. Quick shout uh, to Josh the Black, who made some suggestions today. So I even made some uh, real-time improvements. I was able to reorder 
the character guide so that it's broken up by episodes, but then it has more, it weights towards sorting the characters by importance. So all of the key characters are sort of listed first and then the secondary uh, characters. And I've added some information. I've got a working theory on something right now. And so I was add, added some stuff to the bio page. So yeah, it's, it's evolving as we're going, but um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun and special thanks to Josh for uh, getting in touch with me and helping me work out some, uh, a different formatting for it. Cool. By the way, we'll have more information about our Patreon in general, along with notes about our upcoming schedule at the end of the podcast. All right, David. We had a conversation when we were recording a previous podcast, like, why are we still doing spoiler-free hot takes in the middle <laughs> of the season? Let me X out so the word free in our, we're, in our outline We're done here. with spoiler-free. If you've not yes. watched episode three of True Detective Night Country, be gone with ye, watch the episode and come back. Or if you want to be spoiled, then you know what? I can't I, I can't dictate how you live your life. You that's right. Enjoy yourself. <laughs> I think it was helpful for the first couple of episodes for people who might not yet have uh, yeah. seen the stuff and what like what is the show about? But you're right. Yeah. It's it's time to uh to unfetter ourselves and, and to yeah. talk full of spoilers. Yeah. So David Oh, oh, you're going to ask me. Uh, yeah, what I thought I'd give you time. Them. Yeah. Oh, all right. Um, honestly, I this was my favorite episode of the, of the season so far. Cool. I, I think, you know, I was not super hot on the show for episode one. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I don't know if this is a show for me, even if it's a good quality show. This episode two, I was starting to get drawn in. I was getting reeled in. And I think I'm I'm here. Unlike Kavik. I've been successfully <laughs> reeled in by uh, by HBO funny, on this funny. show. Very good. On this show. That's great. And uh, yeah, it's great. I thought that the it had a very followable, a very easily followed story. Uh -huh. I thought that the, the beats worked. I thought that the surprises were interesting and thought provoking. I did. I did think a couple things towards the end of the episode were a little like, OK, a little cringy, mm -hmm. but mostly I thought that everything really worked because it was really great at showing and not telling. They were doing a really good job of putting scenes next to each other. And I mean that in the way of uh, a Kurt Vonnegut or even an Andor where mm -hmm. one scene leads into another. Yes. And it makes a difference the order because it makes right. you think about the theme of the previous scene in a right. different light. I mean, even, even just, um, and this is the same scene, so it's a bad example, but I'm going to use it anyway. Even the scene of Danvers talking about the domestic violence victim, not being willing to tell the police about, you know, the abuse that she's being suffered, that mm -hmm. she's suffering. Well, well, also knowing that, uh, you know, prior junior has been assaulted by his dad and won't say anything. Mm, that's a good pick. I didn't think about that. That's or nice maybe connection. she doesn't know that it's Hank doing it, but she, she at least strongly knows. suspects. It's very yeah. funny for yeah. Peter and Ace uh, skating instructor <laughs> and whatever his past is to quote unquote fall on the ice. Right, right, right. right. She, she's, I think she's, she's wise to it. Yeah. She at least knows he, he didn't fall. He, yeah. She knows something's up with the story. Correct. So, um, yeah, that was a really great, a really great example of showing, not telling. Right. Right. Um, you know, all, all I'm sure that more will come to me as we go through the episode. But I just really loved the construction of the episode, mm. the construction of the arc, 
the way that one scene led into another and and the way that they brought out they they brought out a lot of really important social justice themes without ever feeling preachy yeah and i loved that they examined things without telling me about them so do you remember i think it was in episode one where i said i'm putting lopez in alongside of Esmail and uh, what's the other guy's name? Uh, Fargo. I'm blanking. Noah Hawley. Noah Hawley. Thank you. As directors who can do that, who can, who can either, who can in some way deal with a concurrent set of real life circumstances and however they manipulate that into the story, it doesn't ever feel ham fisted or too mm-hmm. on the nose and whether they deal with it directly or obliquely turning it upside down or weaving it in, however they weave it in, it is really, really nicely done so that you get the impact of the issue and the questions that you need to be asking yourself. And at the same, but at the same time, you don't feel like you you're getting a finger wagged in your face with a director or the writer moralizing at you. Right. It's almost, it's almost a version of the Martin three-step reveal. Mm, And when I'm talking about that, you know, do you know what I'm talking about with um, George R. R. Martin? If if you're in the audience and you're not, if you're not into the nerdy stuff, like we usually cover, um, and you're here for true detective, the cool kids show, then the Martin three-step reveal is from Game of Thrones. You know, he, he talks about his sort of technique for seeding mystery. I think he says like, he's going to, he's going to reveal something three times. The first time you will get it if you reread like a mad person and really like go for the conspiracy theories and put things together, put clues together. The second time, a lot of people will figure it out. It's made pretty obvious, but it's not explicitly stated. The third time it's in your face. And I think that when you have a show like this and you have a show like Fargo, they are using the supernatural element as the third step. The supernatural mm. element is the thing oh. that's in your face at the end. Interesting. So I don't want to spoil Fargo season five for people because it was amazing. We did a sure. one shot on it if you want to hear our thoughts on it. But that last scene, I think that that was the third step reveal on the themes of the season. Very Even though cool. it was a supernatural I like thing. I like this. And it's I, a framework I, have I haven't a feeling, applied yet before. Yeah. I have a feeling that this season's going to do a similar thing. Uh-huh. And I really like it when they do that. So let's hope. Very cool. What did you think, David? I've been rambling long enough. I thought that this was a banger of an episode. Uh, I did my outline. I finished up my outline today. Started it yesterday. I was working on it today. And I, as I take apart the show and look at the construction, you know, as I'm doing my notes and all that kind of stuff, I'm real. I continually. I'm continuing. Well, I cannot speak tonight. I am constantly amazed at the way that they're stitching the show together and which is what you were pointing to earlier about contrasting scenes together and the way that it, the energy of one scene will move into the next scene and how um, uh, Lopez can take two different issues or two sides of an issue and, and put them back to back and that tells us something about each scene it's just really incredible detail of construction and I'm super appreciating it I think this season so far is true detective AF. This is got all of the uh, key hallmarks of what a true detective show should be. 
with the the guardians, the, these police who keep the the bad men at the door, who keeps the other bad men uh, from coming in, the weird cosmic horror stuff, the uh, just everything about it, the the environmental scenes that we see around Ennis, it's really firing on all cylinders. I think Lopez has taken the property, which got a little confused, and I don't think that Pizzolatto, who did the first two first three seasons i'm sorry um i think the the whole cosmic horror angle it never seems to be what he might have been drifting towards and so but that's what everybody really wants so i think lopez has really picked up that ball and and moved it forward so she's really brought something fresh to the property so i think that's all great um i think the clue to reveal ratio is really high so we're getting nice payoffs at a nice pace. It's not too much. We've got a little tension, but then she, you know, uh, uh, gives us the the answers to certain things at a at a reasonable rate. So that I, I wanna, really good. I want to chime in on that. That was yeah. something else that I I sort of wanted to bring up in my overall review that mm-hmm. I I forgot to bring up, which is I really like the way that this show is layering clues, and mm-hmm. what I mean by that is. When you have the first, you know, the first shock, which is, oh, one of them's alive in there. That's actually burying the bigger twist, which is there's only six of them, right? Mm -hmm. Which is there's Mm -hmm. one person missing, which is only burying the other twist of that. No, there were seven because. No, I'm, I'm saying there's six of them in there and there's one of them out, right? Well, yeah, Lund comes out. So that's six. So Clark and Lund are not in there. So right. Clark right, right, is missing. Right. Yeah. Well, anyway, that's that's yes. my point is I yeah. really like how they're layering. They're sort of obstructing, obfuscating. That's a good word. They're obfuscating clues with other clues. Right. And that's nice. really cool to me. Well, I think that goes into something else that I was going to bring up later, but I'll bring it up now, which is there there's more parts to this puzzle than we can see. And I, some things may not be causal to other things. So yeah, the mind, there might be stuff going on at the mind, but it doesn't have to be a grand unified theory between the mind and Salal and the Arctic mysteries, you know, the mysteries of the Arctic and stuff Mm -hmm. there, there could, and they're all going to fit together at some point. But one thing doesn't necessarily have to do with the other in the sense of, oh, well, the sludge from the Silver Sky Mine did this to that, and then it caused this thing to happen. Mm -hmm. I think these things can be happening in parallel and not necessarily intertwined. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so you can hide clues and hide motivations in that way, but then yet have a really satisfying reveal when that stuff comes clear. Cool. I I, I like that. I like that a lot. So a couple more thoughts. The production, as I was saying, the production is so good this season. The music and the sound effects going from the, the diegetic to the contextual uh, or the not, non-diegetic music, it's just bleeding in and out. And I've got a couple of scenes that I'll mention later on. The camera work has been really great. There was a scene where Danvers and Peter Pryor are walking down the hallway, moving some evidence from the evidence locker room to another equipment room. And the way that the camera moves and the way that that uh, um, uh, Jodie Foster moves rel- relative to the camera, so the camera's following Pryor, 
And so we only see his back. And then she mm-hmm. turns around to say something to Pryor. And then the camera shifts over so that we see her face o- looking over Peter's back. And then they do that again, but on the opposite side. So the camera and Jodie Foster were in sync while uh, Finn Bennett, I think is his name, is the Peter uh, Pryor actor, is sort of walking, standing still. And it's this really super dynamic work. But it was mm-hmm. so you don't even notice it in the moment. It's so right. good. Yeah. Uh, so just just really really wonderful production, and the acting is is there's not a flaw. <laughs> Everybody is right on it. I think it's it's such a joy to talk about this show. So yeah, I gotta say, I, this is basically the, one of the first acting gigs for Navarro, isn't that right? Yes. Yeah. And she's doing a great job. I think that Amazing. you know I wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have known unless I Wikipedia it. Yeah. Unless Absolutely. I had a detective's notebook to consult. <laughs> All right, David, I think we both gushed enough about this show. You know, it's safe to say we both loved it. Why don't we get into the episode? But first, maybe read us some notes that you have for us. Yeah, I thought we. there's a few things regarding some theories that have been are being kicked around, but also some um, more meta issues that I wanted to touch on really quick. Uh First off was just a reminder that I will be listening to other podcasts and other sources and I'll be bringing those in as they're relevant and try do my best to reference them specifically to a person or a podcast when when I've got a, a definite source that I can give. The other thing I want another thing I want to mention was the use of the phrase to refer to um, indigenous communities in the Arctic. And there's some different words. Obviously, Eskimo is an older term that isn't really used much anymore, even though it's still recognized in other communities, maybe outside of, of North America. And then there's a word Inuit that is used a lot, but I think that's a more Canadian specific term. Okay. And for the North Shore of Alaska, I believe the most accurate term is Anupiaq. And I believe that is the plural. So I think we're going to try to use Inupiaq as much as possible when talking about uh, indigenous communities in that area. So okay. if, if, if that's a little bit off, then write in and let us know uh, if there's a, a better way to phrase that. But I thought that that was kind of important because I was getting confused. I wasn't sure what the appropriate terminology was. So I did a little bit of reading today and this is sort of what I came up with. Well, good to keep ourselves in the know on what, yeah. you know, what people prefer to be called. Exactly. Uh, A couple of notes about ghosts and polar bears. (laughs) First off, mechanics of the ghost just want to remind people because I think it plays a lot into this episode. And that was the three different kinds of ghosts. So the ones that miss you, the ones that want that need to tell you something, and then the ones that want to take you with them. And I think we see those uh, at at play at various points in in this Mm. episode. So you're right. Yeah, and we want to keep that in mind as we sort of as the spirit world and the mundane world are communicating with each other in this episode. And further on that, uh, on the, I picked this up on the Reddits. There was a Reddit user Elgonzo ninety one, I believe I'm pronouncing that right, who made a post, and uh, I let them know that I was going to use this, uh, and hopefully they will uh, listen. I'm also in the link when when we publish this. But they cited something. I'm not sure where they cited this from, but they said among the Inuit, uh, Yupik, and the other indigenous communities, polar bears 
are central figures in storytelling, folklore, and ceremonies. They are often depicted as spirit animals or totems, representing qualities such as resilience, hunting, powers, and connection with the natural world. Polar bears are also seen as protectors and guides, guiding hunters on successful expeditions and offering spiritual support during challenging times. And we have seen mm. bear iconography all over the last, not in this episode, but in the last two episodes. There's pictures on walls, there's little stuffies, there's earrings. It, it was just everywhere. Right. So yeah. um, that's an interesting uh, idea that maybe the polar bear is not a menacing figure, but is maybe a beneficial spirit of some kind mm. and something to not be necessarily afraid of something, but something to keep our eyes on. I'm, I'm into that. I, I think the polar bear is clearly prominent in the yeah. show and hugely. Uh, yeah, it's got, it's going to have something to do with the ending. So there was some more Reddit detective work. Apparently the spiral design in season four night country is an opposite spiral to the Louisiana season one spiral. Hmm. They spin in opposite directions. Interesting. And I haven't had time yet this week to grab my, uh, open up my Photoshop and put the two spirals together to see what we, what we have there. But there's a lot of chatter on the Reddits uh, about the fact that these are opposite spirals. So what does it mm. mean? We don't know, but I think it's significant because that's not an overlooked detail. No, they, definitely not. Yeah, no, that's, that's a, a very specific thing that, that has been done. So flag that one. Cool. Uh, also want to flag this whole unreliable narrator. Remember our first opening quote was a made up quote from mm-hmm. a guy in a fictional story who was kind of insane. And, and the story from his point of view, you know, introduces the idea of an unreliable narrator. And I want to connect that to this idea that I think the concept of a waking dream has been introduced into the show. So we're not always seeing what it really is real in the physical mundane world, but maybe it might be real in some way in a spiritual world, right? But there's some sort of crossover there. So the cross, that was a bit, you know, when when Navarro found the, the cross of her mother, that was a little bit more of a flashback, but still it seemed very real. Certainly Liz with the polar bear stuffy when she's woken up by a dream and she reaches down and there's the one-eyed polar bear. But then she later finds that polar bear in the uh, box of Christmas decorations. Mm -hmm. So that seems to be a a bit of a dream to me. And then, of course, we have Navarro in this episode seeing the child on the ice and then hitting her head, being somewhere else. And then, of course, when Lund sits up and speaks to her. Yeah. Yeah. So Which, is that by real? the way uh-huh. was the, was the part of the episode where I was like, okay, really? That was the only yeah, that was the only part where I was like, I've seen this horror movie before. It's just uh, too many, too many, too many times. Okay. I, but but that's a me problem. That's not okay. a show problem. Right. Got it. I thought that was that just creeped me the hell out. That was Your so. Mother good. says hello. I was like, ah, all right. <laughs> ah. Oh, is that is that uh, Palpy? Did Palpy wake up there? <laughs> Uh, so the idea of unreliability or maybe it's not even unreliable, maybe it pushes more into waking dreams and then crossing over between spirit world and such. So there's 
you know, there's there's a there's a, a tearing of the fa- of the fabric of the boundary there, as as Rose points out. So I just mm. wanted to point that mechanic out. I think that that's that's something that's clearly in operation here. Yeah, we didn't even then, see Rose this episode, so no, what we a don't. Shame. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, like I said before, I think the last thing was just that more than one thing can be happening. So the mine and the, the, you know, research, you know, oh, is it, you know, prions or did they dig up some ancient ice artifact that's making everybody crazy or whatever? Those could be both simultaneously happening and they're mm-hmm. not necessarily connected to each other, right? Yeah. They're, I, they're both I would really, simultaneously. I would really enjoy if, any red herrings are not just random, but instead connected to another conspiracy that's just by coincidence being unearthed here. Yes, exactly. That would because be because cool. it it makes the world more whole and uh, realistic yeah. seeming. Yeah, like if Hank Pryor did cover this up, I would love for it to have been because of the mind, because he wrongfully assumed that she died because of the mind or something like right. that. You know. Uh, you know, his, a, a mistake of of assumption, or McKittrick called him up and said, "Hey, look, this is getting all out of hand. Can you just make it go away?" Mm. And oh, and then he's got an he's got a nice Christmas bonus or something, right? That that's yeah. And and the mind didn't actually murder, you know, like yeah, like it was just a normal, you know, uh, a bureaucratic cover up, right? It's just like oh, this is getting out of hand. Let's let's tamp it down. Yeah, right. That doesn't have to be a grand conspiracy, right? Right. Right. So, oh, speaking of grand conspiracies, I do have a working theory about a particular piece of the puzzle. And I don't know when we want it because there's nothing directly in the scene by scene this week that I could tie it into. What's your theory? Okay. So we know that Blair, the woman who was the victim of a domestic violence assault at the beginning of episode one, that she has lost two fingers supposedly Mm -hmm. while working at the crab factory, right? Yep. And I picked up this clue uh, from the Bald Move guys. I believe Aaron called it out uh, on their podcast uh, that came out the other day. That, and I had clocked this clue, but the two, I didn't connect the two things. During the early part of episode two, when Peter Pryor and Danvers are on the bleachers of the ice rink and they're talking about the different clues and looking at different photos and stuff. Peter reports that they were able to pull a palm print off of some of the clothing from the corpsicle. And then they have a photograph of it and they show the photograph for a second. And I've got that in the detective's notebook. Hmm. And I've also now put this on Blair's page because of that photo of that palm print, two fingers do not appear very clearly on that palm print. Mm, I like it. I like it. Keep it going. So going forward from there, and then we've got the spiral on Lund's forehead, right? He didn't draw that on on his head. And when Navarro goes to confront B, the other woman who is at the crab factory, I believe her name is B. Uh, I'm getting that from IMDb. I'm, I'm making an assumption there, but I'm pretty sure that's her her character name because I don't think we've heard it on the the show. She goes, she uh, Navarro shows her the photograph of the spiral. She says, "Oh, you know what's this? You know, crazy stuff." Blair, take a look at this, and then Blair's like, "Uh, uh-uh, no," and then she walks in front of the camera 
and there's like just that mm, this is sus right she's she's giving a sus uh, reaction to what she did even though she's trying to play like oh i've never mm-hmm. seen that devil's i forget they use the words devil cult and a, and a bunch of other words i don't have the quotes yeah. in front of me so here's a thought that however regardless of however they actually died there are some bodies that need to be dealt with. Their their current corpsical position doesn't necessarily have to do with how they died or why they died or how they got there. But however they got there, they got there, right? And the clothing's folded up in a ritualistic way. And that's a hallmark of true detective is sort of this ritual murder thing. So a working theory that I have is that Blair was involved in at least getting the bodies to where they are now and creating some sort of maybe ritual out of this to appease Sedna. So the mythology of Sedna is, and that was the young girl in um, Arctic culture, various different stories. Father cuts off her fingers. The fingers become all the sea creatures. And she's a little bit of a wrathful, vengeful goddess and hunters appease her to have good hunts and things like this. And you've got to like make sure that she's mollified. Well, maybe there was some sort of thing of like, well, let's use some witchcraft and try to like tamp down Sedna because she's really pissed at us right now. And we'll sacrifice, you know, we'll use the bodies of these scientists as some sort of mm-hmm. ritual in some sort of ritualized way. So that's my, that's one part of one theory uh, that I'm, I'm holding in my mind right now. That's pretty cool, and I I absolutely buy this whole. She's awake. Let's go feed her mm-hmm. so that she goes away a little bit. Right. Uh, let's you know so she can hibernate for winter. Let let's go. Uh, let's go feed her some scientists. And she could be different things to different people. The same phenomena, but as we perceive it from a science point of view, from a town point of view, from an indigenous community point of view, she could be various things but all sort of still pointing at the same center of the circle. And so how we appease her, how we deal with this, you know, well, maybe I'm going to pursue some ritualistic way or I'm going to do some sciencey stuff or something. Right. I see that. I see that. Maybe it's a a dead husband like Travis, Mm -hmm. but yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, David, we're a half hour into this podcast. As you've got to get into a season, (laughs) a scene by scene recap. Let's take a quick break. When we get back, we will do so. And we're back. So I'm going to be reading the scene-by-scene recap this week because, David, I know you've got a lot to say about all these scenes. (laughs) So let's give you some breathing room. Let's start off with the cold open, which starts off with a flashback of Navarro driving out to arrest Annie Kay. Navarro experiences the miracle of childbirth amongst a group of Inupiaq women. What'd you think? This was a really amazing scene, and it just... It, it extended both the Annie Kay character and Navarro's character, again, showing us something real and tangible. And, and we learned so much about them through this interaction. And I just really appreciated how deftly they constructed the scene. Everything from the screams when she's like, you know, AFB, you know, open mm-hmm. up as a misdirection, like, oh my God, like what, what is she going to experience? And, and it's, it's a childbirth. 
It's not yeah. like a gun drawn, horrible murder, yeah. which we get later when we find out what the Wheeler case is. So, you mm-hmm. know, what you were pointing to again is, is that they, she's contrasting scenes really, really yeah. uh, in an interesting way. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just really love what everything it says about Annie K. Right. She, mm-hmm. she opens the door. She's like, I'm not going to fight this arrest, but you gotta, you gotta wait for a minute. There was, there was a lot of interesting stuff kind of being shown and not told here, which was, you know, I understand the consequences of my actions, but I care more about this woman not suffering in childbirth Mm -hmm. than I do about getting a resisting arrest charge. And And the, the fact that Annie K, I was really worried that Annie K's character was going to be, a kind of wayward soul. She was a little bit lost and really didn't know what she was doing. She was doing a little bit of this and a little bit mm-hmm. of that. Nah, she's a midwife. She mm-hmm. knows what she's doing and she cares about her community. And so protest was sort of secondary to that. Right. Right. But that she's a competent, clear eyed woman and not some sort of lost misanthropic, you know, young girl who's trying to find herself by identifying with these different things. No, Annie Kay is like, straight up and down. She knows what she is and, and what she wants to accomplish in this world. And I really appreciated that take on her. And you know, it's another fascinating thing about this scene is that between this and the scene later with the hair person, the, mm-hmm. the yes. hairstylist, <laughs> all these businesses are at home, right? Mm-hmm. These are home yeah. businesses. Uh, and it does seem like Annie case is not totally above board. Uh, it's, I don't think the health inspector is coming to this, home birthing center, uh, which is why she says to to Navarro, like, what, are you going to arrest me for that too? Fine. Just give me a minute. We're the last clinic in the region. Right. (laughs) You want what? You want what? (laughs) Which is a huge issue, right? Huge. For both for indigenous populations and for rural populations generally. Is these hospitals closing because they're unable to support themselves in these communities? Or the current speed of laws being passed are uh, restricting doctors, providing care. So doctors are like, I can't can't do this because I go to prison for 50 years or whatever. Right. Yeah. It's it's scary out there. And I, I think it's really fascinating the way that they're showing this, you know, and I've, I've, you know, been in more rural parts of the continental U.S. I've never been to Alaska, but I've, I've seen places where, you know, a lot of things are run out of not, if not homes, they're like multiple businesses in one, right? Like mm-hmm, it's the gas sure. station restaurant and things like sure. that. Uh, the tailor is also the butcher and whatever, you know, all these, all these combined things because people, there's just not enough people to support. fully fledged businesses out there, which is, is a hard way to live. Sure. And, and they even make the point in this episode, you know, half of these people rely on the mines for work. Yeah. What are we going to do without them? And that's, that's a tough question, right? That's a question that people don't want to ask. Right. The setup for the scene too, of Navarro, we learn a little bit more about Navarro specifically later and, and Lopez on the official podcast and then Callie Reese was also on the episode two podcast with Jodie Foster. And so some really great insights about their characters respectively. But it sounds like Navarro is half Dominican and half Anupiat. And okay. then we learn later that her mother took her to Boston yep. where or no, no, she moved to Boston, met her, her, her father, who, mm-hmm. who was now Navarro's father there, and then at some point came back. So 
Navarro is dislocated from her ancestral culture. Her mother never told her or gave her uh, an Anupiak name. So she's a, a stranger. She's both sister and stranger to these women at the birthing center, which really gives us a sense for the disconnect that Navarro feels from being here. I'm, I'm both a protector, but a stranger with these people. And the way that they constructed that just so beautifully encapsulates that struggle that Navarro is going through. And then when the woman takes Navarro's hand, mm-hmm. the emotional reaction on Kelly's face of this acceptance and welcoming was just sublime. It was so on point. Yeah. And she's just amazed at watching this birth happen in front of her. And then she's being welcomed in, wel- welcomed in as a sister and a cultural member, even though she feels so isolated and dislocated from her ancestral culture. And one has to think there's there's two thoughts I have here. First of all, one has to think what would have happened if she had just arrested her there oh before God, she right. could have done yeah. it. She this this woman, uh, Annie Kay, needed to resuscitate yes. the baby coming out. Good point. I didn't think about uh, that. And and later we learn of a stillborn. Yeah. So obviously this is you know a problem. Yeah. Uh, and and Annie Kay is not there to save that stillborn. Right. She's passed away. So Annie Kay's absence has an impact on the community. Not that the baby necessarily would have lived had Annie Kay been there. But, but it highlights the issue of, of proper maternal care. Right. Where, where something could have, whereas borderline and without a, a competent medical staff, trained, whatever, midwife right. or nurse right. or doctor or whatever. But people Midwives know are what licensed in, in a lot of states. Sure. I, I think in all yeah. states. But um, I, whatever I, the I don't title, know. right? You yeah. you have been trained and you understand what it is to do yeah. to, to manage these issues. I don't know if um, she was licensed, but she certainly was competent. She knew what she was doing, <laughs> right? Right. And she had the nerves to handle that stressful situation. Yeah. With the mother, like, "Where's my baby, yo?" Yeah. And she's like, "I just got to focus." Right. And she just coldly points back to Navarro and gives her her hands and says. All right, let's do this then. Yeah. <laughs> Which, Which they shames. cut, by the way. Did she arrest her after that? It's it's not yeah, they completely cut the clear. But then it she yeah, or put the cuffs on her. Obviously she was arrested, but did she put the cuffs on yeah. her? That's that's yeah. a question. But then that puts Callie into or to Navarro in this sort of slightly shameful position. Like you just saved a baby's life and now I have to treat you like a criminal and I'm the executioner of, you know, I have to execute the law here and I have to follow procedure, which is to put you in handcuffs, you know? Yeah. It's sad. The other thing I wanted to say was this scene was so well contrasted with the experience of Leah later at the protest where Leah is having this really religious experience and you could see, She's kind of as resistant as uh, I almost said Callie, but uh, right, as, as Navarro, as Navarro, mm. as Navarro at first. Mm, but really she, you see her by the end of the scene, embracing it, embracing it. Yeah, yeah. really, you know, puts her, closes her eyes. She's ready to do it. Uh, so many great little transitions here. I could go on and on, but uh, we'll have to save some of them for the later. <laughs> save scenes. it for later. The uh, last thing to, that I'll point out is that the women singing is both diegetic and complementary. That's the a, a way of saying non-diegetic. So we're getting an, uh, an oral 
context outside of the scene that gives us the vibes of the scene, but yet that the, the, the music coming out of the scene that's being sung by the women in the scene connects. So, Oh, I, I just had this thought. I mean, that's this whole idea of this liminal space that Lopez says that she's specifically working on is like, okay, here's this world out here, down here. And then there's this world out here. And the music is taking us across that transition between, Hey, we're out here watching the show and we hear context music, but then we hear in show music. And then those two things start to bleed together and we don't know which is what. Mm. So mm. that's cool. Yeah. That's very, cool. Okay. Let's move on. We return to the present, December 22nd, the fifth day of The Long Night, and Navarro watches as Hank rallies a mixed posse of locals and law enforcement to hunt for Clark. Can I ask you a question? How many days into The Long Night do the White Walkers come? Like, how long does Jon Snow have to prepare Ennis? Where's the wall? Yeah. Where's the wall? We need an ice dragon. We need an ice dragon. Where's the wall? The wall is at... uh, are, is the Night Watch um, the the scientists? Are they are they just uh, <laughs> those are the maesters though, right? Aren't those are they the maesters? There you go. Yeah, there you yeah. go. They're playing with with strange magics. Fair enough. Okay. Fair enough. Did you do you know the whole oranges thing from The Godfather? Da 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 no. da. Oh oh, that there's an orange in a scene where people die. Yeah. And then other filmmakers use that and sort of play and riff and play on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We talked. I only know about this. I didn't really watch all those, but we we only talked about this uh, in The White Lotus in Mm -hmm. season two. That's right. I think it meant nothing in the end. It was just like kind of a spoof on the fact that they had um, Michael. Right. um, What's his last name? Imperioli. Imperioli. yeah, Yeah. Yeah. They had him and I think they were just playing with it. So one of the local yokels, uh, as he's getting out of the truck, his bag tips over a little bit and a couple of oranges roll out. Mm -hmm. And then Callie picks one up and then puts it in her pocket. And then later we have the scene where she throws it and it comes back to her. So Evangeline, right? Yes, Evangeline. I I did it last scene. You have to do with this scene. What did I just say? You said Callie. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Yeah, Callie Reese. Yes, I'm thinking of her. Uh, Evangeline, yeah, does that. So that was just clearly. And then in the credit sequence, there are two oranges. Mm. One in one of the very early on in the uh, beginning of the scene, there's like a bathtub. And then it shows like the liquid in the bathtub. And then the next scene of the credit sequence, there's an orange rolling across the road. And then later on, towards near the end, there's an orange peel um, that Mm. is also featured in there. So, and I believe, I didn't hear it directly, but I've heard people talk about it, that Lopez mentioned something about this. So I don't know if it's just Lopez having fun and doing a wink and a nod, or if it's going to be consequential or not, uh, if it's going to actually be determinative on the the plot. That's interesting. I... um... I, I can't analyze the credit sequence because I'm too busy rocking out to Billie Eilish. Okay. <laughs> it's a great song. I'm too busy headbanging. Nice. Very good. The, you know, Hank is really an asshole <laughs> with, <laughs> with this, uh, let's go find this motherfucker, or, you know, whatever he says. Right, it's, right. It's, uh, we don't even know that this guy is the perpetrator yet. He could be as much a victim as everybody else. 
Right, exactly. Armed and dangerous, and and uh, do we want him alive? It's that's uh, that's a tricky bit, bit too. Yeah, and and he says, "Do we?" Uh, so clearly setting up for uh, Hank as a, a very black and white, simplistic law and order man. If you're um, or you're or doing what trying I to cover say, this up too. Yeah, agreed. He just wants to put it all to bed and go back to right. normal. Right. Right. Yeah. Much rather put a bullet in it than he would. Yes. Put it in a cell like uh, the the uh, case closed drunk driver. Right. right. <laughs> yep. Put a bullet in Clark. Case closed. Everything goes back to normal. And, uh, you know, yep. uh, my, my new bride comes and and we're happy in my new, in my blue living room. <laughs> yep. Yep. And we got to remember that Hank, as far as I know, is a captain. He wears captain's bars. And so that means he's a command rank. That means he has authority and jurisdiction and. And as we see later, you know, he's threatened by Danvers with like a, a, a demerit a report, sort of. Yeah. Yeah. A report. And he's like, screw you. Right. Like, you know, I'll, I can I can throw as much shit back at you as, as you want to throw me. So you can't just fire him. You can't just get rid of him. You can't just tell him what to do. He's not subordinate. He is a senior rank. And so he can invite these local yokels to uh, right. to come to some degree. Right. Right. So Danvers can't just fire him. Civil service. Get rid of your that. hillbillies. <laughs> she says several times. Right. I like that she pitches the line to to his son and his son. She knew he wasn't going to actually say it. So she comes in, goes, now get rid of your hillbillies. <laughs> it's like, All right. I, I tried to script it, but it didn't work out. Um, we talked about the opening credits a little bit with the with the orange. So let's move on to at the police station. Danvers tries in vain to contact Hank. Peter updates Liz on various operational details, and they begin the process of reviewing the evidence from the trailer. Danvers wants Navarro temporarily assigned to the case. Peter asks the question, what happened on the Wheeler case? And we get a flashback, which was bizarre. Mm, what did because, you think? Well, the thing that really stuck with me was the whistling. Yes. And and it's yes. it's contrary to what she's saying and I don't know if it's that she's lying or if that was like a supernatural like or hallucinogenic thing that was happening with her. No, they sh- well they sh- I I think they straight up murdered that dude. You think so? Totally extrajudicial killing. Yep. Okay. And yep. Wow. They're like F this shitbird. He's you know, and she she uh, recites the the long series of problems with this guy, and they knew where mm-hmm. it was going, but legally their hands were tied, and here they were in this situation, and they, they manufactured it as and, he shot himself. Yep, and mm. this is not unlike a major scene from season one where the two principal detectives do a similar thing. I won't go into it because I don't, if you haven't seen the season, I don't want to spoil it, but they do at some point concoct a uh, fictionalized story of something that really happened and mm-hmm. stage the evidence so that they're in the right, knowing that people aren't going to dig really hard, that they're, they're going to see, yeah, it all looks about right. Cool. We take your story. Mm-hmm. You guys are good people. Here's a hero's medal. Da da da. Yeah. Um, and in this scene, you know, I figure they, they staged it, but I think they totally popped the dude. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is, that is a true detective hallmark right there. This flashback, the doing something a little bit naughty. uh, And again, it's this whole thing of, 
I'm a bad man and I keep the bad men from coming in. I forget what the exact line is. Uh, but that's that's what I believe Rust Cole says in season one is like, hmm. you know, yeah, we we keep the the scary stuff out. And to be able to do that, we have to be a little bit scary and naughty ourselves. Yeah. I really like the banter between Peter and Liz. I think that that's really fun and kind of leads into the whole Mrs. Robinson joke later. Right. Yes. <laughs> and I, I don't buy that that's an actual thing, but I think that it was more of like, I think the thing later was more like, well, how dare you say that about me? I'm your boss. It wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't that he was saying a truth because right. obviously she's not interested in him. I, I did love her line. I hate everyone. I hate you. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's truth. It's the total truth. And and that's so interesting. I think she and Navarro both are just so married to the job that they're just mm. like, okay, everyone's going to hate me and I have to be okay with that. And I think it's rubbing off on Peter a little bit. Mm. Later on when he's talking to Kayla. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. And in yep, not yep. a great way. We yep. don't love a workaholic and we don't love somebody who can't take care of his family because he's so married to the job. And she specifically says to him, I didn't marry a cop. And he's but, like, but, but I want to be a cop. Yeah. What if and, I wanted to be a cop. And the way that he says, well, maybe I don't want to be goofy. Right. Like, right. Like, can I not better myself? Can mm-hmm. I not, can I not change? And you know, there's, I, I'm goofy. You know, I, I I make jokes quite a lot, even if even if I do serious work. I, I made a joke with my daughter. She asked me once about uh, I made some silly dad joke. And I said, well, the moment that um, our children are born, we become silly. We become, <laughs> you know, sure. there's a silly dad. No, I've always comes been out silly. Of us. I've always okay. been silly. Do you know what somebody said to me that I worked with at, at uh, I do not a, know a service industry said. sometime? They said. You say ridiculous things all the time, and then you say something very serious and intelligent Profound. all of a sudden, and I don't know what to do with that. And I was like, "That's my, that's the whole podcast. That's that's like that the is whole, the podcast. That's the podcast. <laughs> that is absolutely our shtick for sure, hundred percent." But I, I wanted to point out something uh, additionally about the Navarro Danvers uh, dynamic and relationship. Which I don't know if we're as smooth as they are with our maneuvers with the the microphone, but when they Mm -hmm. were moving into that house, into Wheeler's house, their tactical unspoken communication was so smooth. They were so in sync with each other. It was scary. Obviously, the actors had rehearsed and rehearsed that scene, but the way it's presented to us is is that Danvers and, and Navarro are tight. And so whatever went down with that, Wheeler case pushed them apart so hard. And then late, you know, earlier Danvers was like, no, I I do think you want to work with me. That's Mm -hmm. I I do think. So there's, uh, you know, and and this is something that Lopez has said that there are forces that are pushing them apart, but also forces pulling them together. And that tension is what is, you know, interesting and fascinating about the, the relationship between these two women. So who do you think shot Wheeler if, if it was, yeah, either of them. I kind of feel like Danvers did it. I don't think so. I think Navarro think did it, it and Navarro? that's why she got transferred away. Okay. She didn't get transferred away. She she was asked they agree it was like and Trooper isn't a downgrade. Trooper is sure. Is, sure. is it at best a, a a lateral move. 
but she's got a lot more responsibility as a as a lone trooper than she does as a you know a police department person. But she said, what, what does she say? You transferred me or when you transferred, like there's some, mm-hmm. it was, I think they agreed. Maybe it was. But Danvers that's what like, I mean. Like, was there, was there a quiet, like, cause like. It was, I, I agree. You yes. know, you, you hear about that in police and military and things like that, where like somebody fucks up bad. Right. But somebody else was looking out for them. Right. And so they're like, I can't have you working here anymore where there might be witnesses. Mm-hmm. I'm going to send you somewhere else. Yeah. The quiet transfer, right? Exactly. Um, which is a problem. It's a big problem. <laughs> I'm not defending this practice. I'm just right. speculating on what might have happened. And, and I think if it was reality. Danvers, Danvers would have left. Mm. Mm. But she could take, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a whole, we could have a, right in. <laughs> write in or come on the discord and, and talk about it. Cause I think there's some really good debatable points. And I think it's really fascinating to think about it. it and it's a great way to examine their characters, their relative character traits and, and who could take the heat, who could actually pull the trigger. Navarro has prior wartime experience. Danvers, mm-hmm. you know, what happened at, at that point? Was she already, uh, uh, suffered the tragedy of whatever happened with her? Was she already sort of that hard woman, yeah, I think there's some really interesting uh, facets to examine with that question. And of course, Danvers gets in her little quip. She's going to call immigration on the <laughs> Russian order bride, right? Which, quite honestly, ineffective. She could just get a rowboat and she could be back there in 15 minutes. Right. <laughs> They're in Alaska. See it from your house. <laughs> yeah, what, was that Sarah Palin said that? Yeah. I could, mm-hmm. I could see Russia from my house. Yep. <laughs> silly, silly, silly. Just like the joke I'm making now. All right, let's move on to Out on the Ice. Navarro throws her orange and the orange comes back. She gets a radio call and then her and Danvers start examining the trailer evidence. There's a montage. Oh, oh I'm sorry. You you uh, you want me to say this dramatically, I see in the notes. <laughs> I'm going to leave this in. Montage. There you go. Well, we get flashbacks and montage. It's always funny. Montage. Uh, yeah. Okay. They <laughs> develop a lead based on Annie's hair dye. I, I like that. I like. So I liked what I liked most about the scene was that I think Danvers was impressing Navarro. I mm. think that Navarro forgot how sharp right. Danvers is. Right. And right. Navarro sees her as this like old time cop. You know, just <laughs> racist. Yeah, which she <laughs> is. Ra- I will say Navarro's racist between Russian Order Bride, her you mean, stuff uh, with the indigenous community. Uh, did I say Navarro? I meant yeah, Dan- yeah. Danvers. Yeah. D- d- I'm, I'm, I'm sure. Anyway, my point is Danvers is definitely racist. She said a bunch of problematic things throughout these few episodes, including the Russian Order Bride thing that I just said. But um, I think that Navarro forgets that she's a really competent cop, right? Yeah, and right. this whole. I'm not playing your game. I'm not playing your stupid questions game. Mm-hmm. I think, first of all, I think that that's why she, you know, as much as she says she hates Peter, I think that's why Danvers likes hanging out with Peter because Peter will indulge game. her. Mm, Peter will will absolutely let her be her most self-indulgent. And he's self. good at it and he gets her praise by doing it. Right. And that feels they, good, as you were saying in episode one, like she's the kind of boss that when she gives you praise – Dang, it feels good, and I want some yeah. more of that. Yeah, yeah. Either that, or she's sending you boomer texts in all caps. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ouch! Who's Mrs. Robinson? 
Yeah. I, I did know that reference. Oh, good, good, good. So I, don't I, worry. I, I, don't worried, worry. I worried for you. Mostly because I absolutely love Simon and Garfunkel. So I sure. know that whole, that whole deal. Got it. So the orange thing, uh, I think is the first case of, is this a waking dream? Is this, you know, crossing over to spirit world? Did it really happen, happen? Or, you know, what, what, what's going on there? And I think it has to do with one of the ghosts that she's going to meet later and whether it's, whether physically a bundle of atoms called an, that we would call an orange came rolling back, or it was this tearing of fabric and this sort of crossing over to the spirit world. It doesn't matter because for Evangeline, it did occur right from her point of view as a, as an observer. Mm Mm-hmm. So um, I just want to hang these things. I think they're they're priming the pump for you know this kind of stuff to keep happening through the the rest of the season. Cool. Um, the the song that they do the montage to is "Sing Sing" by the Bones of J.R. Jones. That's uh, what a name. Yeah, I know, right? And the. Again, a, a really interesting character moment is Danvers and Navarro standing back to back in the middle of the circle of all the evidence that they've mm-hmm. ruled out, you know, that they've laid out for each other. And even though Navarro hasn't been working with Danvers for a while, she falls right into it and she's like, okay, let's do it. Get the gloves on. And they go and they both know they've done this enough together in the past that they sort of pick up from where they left off. And, and Navarro knows how to work with Danvers silently, right? Without any, without any, well, this is how I like to work and this is what we should do. N- Navarro just picks it up and goes with it. And uh, Lopez has talked about this. I don't know. Well, you haven't seen The Wire, no. if I recall. Well, I've seen like the first few episodes. That's about it. Okay. Did you see the fuck episode? Where they are doing a, it, that's what it's called. It's or not the episode. It's a scene in an episode early on, where the two detectives are examining a crime scene. I don't. And the remember. only thing that either of them say is "fuck." I don't fuck. remember. I don't think so. I don't. Fuck I think that fuck. would have stuck out to me. Okay, it's a brilliant scene. It's it's Bunk and McNulty examining, uh, trying to figure out where a shooter stood to uh, murder a witness. And all they say, they they work the entire crime scene, and the only thing that they do is use the word "fuck" as as this <laughs> uh, all all nouns, verbs, subjects, conjunctions, sure. you know, everything. Sure. And it is absolutely uh, a hilarious but eye opening scene. And I think, in some ways, this is a callback to that. And I think uh, Navarro, or sorry, Lopez, has actually said that you know the wire is something that is um, has an influence on her. So. After they kind of figure out the, the hair dye thing and, and obviously that that uh, Clark and Annie w- were in a seemingly happy relationship, uh, the um, the issue of Ted <laughs> comes mm. up and Navarro points out to uh, Danvers that everybody knows. Yeah, that was great. And I think that... Uh Again, the way that they're constructing these scenes in this episode in general, it's really great how they're talking about a secret relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh, and she's like, yes, why are, yes. Why would anyone hide it? And Navarro's like, why do you hide it with Ted? And <laughs> and But we see the deflection of, of Danvers going like, oh, you still fucking Kavik? 
Mm-hmm. You know, this, this, uh, it's really, it, it felt very like a low blow, that one. Sure. Right. It just felt like she was picking on her for, for a partner. And the, at least the, at least the Ted thing was relevant to what they were talking about. Right. Right. Was right. why Secret would you hide a relationship? You're hiding a relationship. Why do you hide a relationship? She Navarro doesn't hide her relationship with Carvick. She just doesn't talk about it. She doesn't advertise it. Right. But like she's not going to she's not slinking around through the back door necessarily. Right. Where Danvers is trying to do that. She's going right through the front door of that fishing hole. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Fun. So they go to the hairdresser, Susan, uh, who was friends with Annie Kay. Susan's daughter gets scared and Danvers makes friends and mac and cheese, of course. We learn that Hank buried evidence on the Annie K case. Great song in here, "Like I Do" by Georgina Birch. Uh, again, the the music, you know, it, it starts complimentary first, and then goes into diegetic, and then the police radio cuts mm-hmm. in, and then so we know, and so does Susan, that this isn't just some other customer walking in, but the cops are here. Because yeah. there's a very distinctive sound of a police radio squawking, right? Mm-hmm. Just, again, beautiful episode construction and amazing editing. And what a fun good cop, bad cop scene, right? Right, Where right, you have right. Navarro being like, why didn't you tell me about anything? You lied to me. And in, at the same time, you have Danvers going, come on, kid. I'm bringing you in the kitchen. And uh, We're talking about by, Puddles by the, way, the Unicorn. Uh, yes, Puddles the unicorn, and and she's really great at, you know, she she has the kid use her executive function, mm. like she she brings her into an activity, so she her so her mind pivots away from emotion right. and being upset. Right. Really good parenting technique over there. So uh, Danvers, she could do something. So complexity, right? Danvers isn't just. Good cop, bad cop, tough bitch cop, you know, a wounded, you know, woman suffers tragedy cop. She's mm-hmm. a lot. She's all of these things in more. Right. As and we all are. Right. We are, we are we all, all many are. different people in one. Yeah. And and I really like the way that, again, they showed me. Right. She sh- they show me her having her mm. stir the mac and cheese. OK, stir that. You're not telling me it's not like Navarro goes, I know you're good with kids. So you take her in the kitchen and then that's the last we see them. Right. Which would so many other shows would have just done that. Right. Right. Yeah. Come on. You're, you're you know, good come with on, kids. kids. Just go yeah. ahead. Yeah. Yep. Really, really good stuff. I love mm-hmm. that the customer was still in the kitchen. <laughs> like, listening yeah. To all of this stuff. Making small talk. And, and she and, can't go anywhere because her hair is being, you know, she had, they have to wait for whatever that the, the treatment is to, to finish up, uh, affecting the hair. So. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and, and, of course, we get the twist in the scene with Oliver that we have. There's, yeah. there's a, a ninth member of Salal right. that we just never knew about. Right. The equipment engineer who left before Annie died. Yeah. Before we, well, we'll get to that later because obviously we have the conversation with him later. Um, I did. Did you think that the blue hair dye? Because the way I was connecting the blue hair dye that Navarro knew that is because her sister Jules has currently has blue hair. Yeah, I I did think about that later. Okay. And maybe that's the case. Maybe she knows you know where to go for the hair dye, but it does sound like Navarro had previously known this woman. And had sure, questioned yes. her about yeah. Annie K. Right. So she she knew like, okay, if she was getting her hair dyed, it was here. 
Let's right, go talk Susan. to her. Yeah. yeah, I don't. I I think that might just be a coincidence, or maybe it's not, but it's related for a different reason. It's a uh, it's a but it just buttresses her mm-hmm. her leap of intuitive logic there. Her de- yeah. or you know whatever yeah. not intuitive deductive reasoning there. She's like, oh wait, there's a hairdresser. Uh, you know how many hairdressers are? There's probably a dozen of them. Yeah, who who knew Annie? This one. Oh, and you know, da 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 da. Right. Mm-hmm. She figured it out. So Annie had the tattoo first and showed it yep. to Clark. And then this relation to the dreams was spooky. Yes. So she was dreaming of it, got the tattoo, and then it stopped the dreams. Mm-hmm. And that was all the way back in high school. So she's had that tattoo for a long time. Yeah. So something in the spirit world was speaking to her and she, according to Susan here, if, if we're, if Susan is to be uh, fully believed and then what uh, Clark got the tattoo himself out of grief four days after Annie was murdered. If I'm lining up the facts, right? Yeah, no, that's right. Okay. Four days after she died, they said. And I, I'm guessing that the reason Annie wanted to keep the relationship a secret was the fact that as somebody who's an activist and and um, is speaking out for her community, maybe dating a Irish guy who's a you know scientist at the weird science place, and who's that, who's digging up stuff. Yeah, maybe that's not a, a, yeah. a, the best look. I don't know. I could I could She's see like, it's that. not a mine. It's just a drill. Yeah, and it's, it's it's getting a little. Uh, and they called a mine a mine. Uh, you know. <laughs> That's the only headcanon I could think. It was like, uh, yeah. you know, I shouldn't be seen dating this guy. I think that's fair. I okay. wonder why Oliver and Susan kept it secret, though, then. Yeah. Like, uh, why is everyone's relationship with Salal secret? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's but something else there. I don't believe Susan all the way. Ask the question, John. <laughs> why are you lying, Susan? Why are you lying and what are you hiding? All right, so Danvers and Navarro head out to find Oliver. As they talk, Navarro suspects that Hank took Navarro off the case to protect the mine. Danvers offers alternative questions and then gets a Tinder message. Danvers fucks Navarro praise. Why did you make me say that sentence? You wrote this. <laughs> I wrote that. That's not, that's not what I wanted to say tonight. <laughs> I didn't know how else to figure that out. It was like, ah, uh, so... Anyway, Danvers makes Christopher Eccleston make stupid grins and Navarro. I don't believe her when she says she prays. I think she said that because her sister does that. She says she listens, right? Mm -hmm. Which it's not like, dear God, please make me have a nice life. Amen. But they made a point. Didn't they make a point? Somebody said, well, she's praying. Because she's scared oh, sure. that something's coming. They made a point to say that. And I wonder if Navarro so, was basically just, you know, saying that. No, I think it's, I think there's, there's more to it. I think when we look back at Navarro's mother and the cross and the, and the stuff. So that was part of her life. And then I think the key scene here is when Navarro is talking to Ryan, Annie's brother in episode one. He asks her, do you believe in God? And she says, yes. And we get the flashback of her uh, deployed somewhere. 
and another soldier who has half their head blown off says to her, listen. And then that's what she says here is listen. And then we get a listen later on, right? There's another uh, uh, point where a listen comes up in the thing. So I think, I think this is genuine, but I don't think it's praying in the sense of, you know, we think of pray, dear Lord, thank you for this food. Amen. Right. It's not like that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more of the spiritual listening. That's the way Fair I'm, enough. I'm in, that's the way I'm interpreting it. Fair enough. Yeah. So the this whole thing with the questions, it keeps coming up. Mm-hmm. This whole stop with the questions thing. I'm not playing the game. <laughs> but the questions help Navarro clarify her thoughts in this moment. Like totally. Why is this all connected? And and you know, I think Navarro's and this is another reason why I think she's the one who pulled the trigger on the on okay. the other case. If if one of them did. And I like your theory, so I'm going with it. But uh, I, I that's why I think it's Navarro, because I think Navarro, her flaw is that she jumps to conclusions. She is she leads very much with an emotional response to a lot of things. We see that later when she goes after Hank Pryor right away. She comes right in on the ice and goes right for him. And, uh, you know, emotion is a tool. Mm-hmm. Emotion is is important. We investigate. You know, certain crimes solely because of emo- like harassment. Mm-hmm. is based on emotion solely. Mm-hmm. Crimes of passion, right? That's right, emotional right, crime, right. right? And uh, so, sure, like there's there's a place for emotion. I think that the, the problem is when you let it rule you completely. And I think Wh- that Navarro gets into that point. Which is really interesting because for as analytical and a good detective as Danvers is, she's also emotional. The way she reacts to Stacey Chalmers, the the way that she reacts to Leah. There's a lot of uh, emotionality the right under- The way she reacts to Hank Pryor. <laughs> yes. Woo. Uh, so they're both emotional and they're both, uh, they both have keen intellectual minds, but they're, 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 they're different people. They're they're built a, a little bit differently. Where Navarro is big and physically imposing, and you know did military service and all this kind of stuff. Danvers is a bit more diminutive, and um, she really uses her outsized ego to keep everyone in check. Right, that's uh, not uncommon for women who are in leadership positions in in places where. You know, the men folk don't feel like that's a cool thing. So you've got to kind of push and dominate a little bit more. Mm. So it, it's, it's again, as you're pointing out, these, the, the, the two characters, the way that they're contrasting with each other is, is really good. Mm-hmm. Chumpa, loompa, doopadi, doo. <laughs> the humor. There's so much humor through this whole episode. And if we didn't have these little moments, Mrs. Robinson, Chumpa, loompa, it would be really dry pie. It would be very hard to suffer. That was pretty good. These episodes, that was pretty episodes. It's like, are you trying to say chupacabra? It's, <laughs> it's just, it's not great. It's not great. <laughs> oh, and then the other line is, I don't fuck where I eat. Oh my God. What a line. <laughs> right. I mean, fair. I get it. But fair. I get it. Do what you want, Liz Danvers. Do what you want. The, um, did you notice the partial sun up? I didn't, but. I see it's in your notes. Yes. My <laughs> my wife pointed it out. She's like, oh, look, the sun's coming up here a little bit. And so I guess that would be a little bit accurate that the it, the sun never fully rises, but at certain parts of the day, because they're not 
at the top of the Arctic Circle, they're only 150 miles north of the Arctic Circle line. So you would get some day night effect, I would think. I've never lived in the Arctic right. Circle, so I don't know how to how to interpret that. But that's uh, or, or or explain that. But uh, but that's what would be my intellectual understanding of that. Okay, I buy that. Yeah. So we learn that Hank took Navarro off the case. So Hank was in charge. This was before Danvers came. And at some point he said, you're off the case. And that goes into the logic of the mine, you know, tried to get this thing hushed up somehow. Yeah, I uh, he's involved somehow. But I I think Danvers is right. There's something else here. For sure. So there's more sure. players that we don't know about. And that's the problem. And if if Hank would just, you know, it's the same thing with finding Clark. Like, Let's just close the case. Like, who cares mm-hmm. who's guilty? Just shut it down and let's move on with it. I think so, there was a payday involved somewhere. There, I, there's a not, reason that they said, I have some money left. Yes. There's a reason they put that in there. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. And again, Absolutely. I don't know if it's any case killers or whoever hired a killer <laughs> that paid him off, but somebody paid him off for something there. Yeah, and it could even just be like, oh, well, we'll will contribute to you, you know, to something or whatever. It doesn't even have to be a necessarily. It's, it's Gus Fring getting free chicken for everyone <laughs> exactly, in the hospital, that's right? Exactly right. You know, it could just be something like that where it's uh, it's indirect, and it's not like he knew who the killer was and then tore up the evidence. It's more like, can we just? move this thing along? Can we just quiet it down? You know, what what can you do to just sort of blow this candle out? All right. Hank and Peter, the priors, the prior priors, uh, have a heart to heart in front of a pile of thawing dead bodies in an ice rink. What a, <laughs> what a scene. Right. You know, you know, just have a heart to heart with my dad, who's a, you know, just my casual. abusive dad in front yeah. of a, a pile of frozen bodies. Yep. Well, partially frozen. Let's partially frozen. Partially frozen. Uh, Hanks gives his son a pair of old skates to pass on to his grandson. Peter plays his father and tries to get more info about what happens between happened between Danvers and Navarro. He says, no, I don't know anything, which I don't buy. Navarro confronts Hank. Danvers flips a cup of coffee in Hank's face and Peter comes through with forensic tech. Okay. I, I got to say something here. It is amazing that Liz Danvers goes, hey, 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 calm down. Pushes Navarro <laughs> away. Calms her completely down. Navarro's Navarro's okay for a moment. And Danvers like, ah, fuck it. I'll assault him then. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hank provoked her, right? Yeah, yeah. With the, with the Mrs. Robinson. And should we – Mrs. Robinson is a, a term described – um, for when an older woman it pursues uh, a younger man, and that's in reference to the '67 movie *The Graduate*, and then of course the f- famous Simon and Garfunkel song that uh, accompanies that that uh, mm-hmm. that movie. So, uh, and it's a wonderful Simon and Garfunkel song that I won't sing because Paul Simon is one of the most litigious musicians <laughs> right, in the entire world. That's right. So. You know, that that Hank would throw that back at her and challenge her authority in that way, 
she just had to dominate. She had to over dominate the situation. Is is my read of it? Yeah. I don't look, know. What, what do he said was vile and rude, and yeah, it was terrible. But it, her doing that did not help the situation because now it's like, <laughs> he's okay. How many? How many? That and how many things does he have to report now? You know, like she assaulted mm-hmm. him right there with witnesses, but right. Uh, yeah, it's not great. It's not great because what she said was a legitimate thing to report him for, which is you didn't report a tip on a murder. You crazy mm-hmm. man. Uh, and he's like, you're playing Mrs. Robinson, which like, you know, would be inappropriate if it were actually happening, but it's clearly not happening. He knows that he's just, but it would just gum up the works and they'd have to do an mm-hmm. investigation and it would get all messy. Right. So right. He, he can throw as much shit back and cause as much confusion even though he's the one who's really guilty, he would just, you know, continue to muddy the waters like yeah. some people do with our legal system. Currently. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, uh, you, you watch Shit's Creek, David? I've watched a few episodes. Uh, not my that that whole genre of comedy is not my favorite. That's just that's a me okay. thing. So, well, I love it. And, I do appreciate and it. I do appreciate I, it. I was reminded of it because in one of the first few episodes, David has a panic attack, the David in that show. Right. Yeah. And, you know, he goes to the front desk uh, person, Stevie, and says, hey, is there a doctor in town? She goes, kind of. And they bring him to the vet to get looked at. <laughs> right, uh, right. Because right. it's a small town. And here Was we have the, the same thing. Season? I might oh, yeah, have seen Yeah, it's in the first one. season. Yeah. yeah. I think it's one of the first few episodes. I think I've seen that one. Yeah. So that's that's a good thing. And so here they're like, well, we can't get a doctor. What's the next best thing? Let's just get bring a, in the, the okay. large game vet. And the, again, it's a little cap of humor on what is a really intense scene. Yeah. Deep, deep insults, both for what Hank said and the fact that she flipped the co- coffee up in his face. Yeah. Deeply wounded pride situation. Everybody's like primed for violence, right? It's like, oh shit, what's about to go down? Is mm-hmm. this going to get any worse? And then Peter's like, yeah, my cousin's a vet. He can come and, you know, check out the bodies. Yep. And the way that they play that scene, oh no, and then then it's the who's Mrs. Robinson? And it just diffuses the the angsty energy that that scene created. So brilliant writing to to be able to move us through those spaces and then back out without leaving us uh, like, you know? Mm -hmm. All right, let's move on to the next scene. We're already running long, David. You said to me, we could do this in 90 minutes. (laughs) It's already an hour 20. We're like halfway through the episode, maybe. All right. All right, let's keep going. Navarro meets up with Kavik, who is out ice fishing in his shanty. Nice word. Nice word there. That's that's what the internet told me the word is. Okay. (laughs) It's a nice shanty. Uh, Navarro asks him uh, to find Tagak. 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 Sorry. uh, The engineer. But Kavik asks for something in return for Navarro to share something personal with him. And he asks about Evangeline's mother. This, this, um, I really love that she jumps to how much money do you want? Mm -hmm. Because she's used to dealing (laughs) in like serious shit. And but but the thing the one thing that she won't give him until she thinks it over is something personal, something meaningful. Mm-hmm. And he pries it out of her in, in a way. He's like, okay, mm-hmm. you know, I'm I'm willing fine. I you want to leave? Storm out. Good to see you, Evangeline. You know, don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. And then she comes back, and it's such a great insight into their relationship, into the fact that he sees something in her and wants to connect to that, but yet she's just got that 
big shield armor guardian, you know, I'm a cop, uh, I'm a lone trooper kind of energy. And I don't share personal details only with Jules. And even with Jules, I'm her protector, right? I'm yeah. trying to take care of her. I so really like her that to... she curses him out and he and he goes, <laughs> lovely to see you too, Evangeline. It's so good. So good. Again, a, a humor, right? Really intense personal stakes and then a little capper of humor to, to mm-hmm. bleed the energy off. So, so good. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So we learned that uh, her mom, le- we covered this a little bit before, Left when she was 15, uh, met her dad in Boston. Dude was not a good dude. And then um, her mother ends up uh, moving back with the, with the girls and then ends up, uh, sounds like she came to a violent end as well, which is yeah. makes makes something like Annie's death very personal for. Avengers. Right. An unsolved murder must really hurt. Yeah. It must really hurt her. Another sister, another woman, another native woman murdered mm-hmm. and nobody gives a shit about it. Yep. Yep. Especially now that she knows that it might have been solved had mm-hmm. Hank Pryor done his job. Right. Very personal stakes. Um, and then we also know, so this ties into this whole thing too, which later comes up with uh, when they find Tagak. And it ties back into episode one where when B asks her, who's your Akka? Who's your mother? Right. Mm-hmm. It's this whole thing. Everybody keeps asking uh, Navarro, who are you? Right. You know, who are you in our community? You you have not given us any of the signifiers or ritual or or indicators of where you fit in in society here. And she doesn't know. She doesn't have an answer for that. But and what is what does she actually say when they ask her for her name? She says, I don't know. And they say, oh, you don't remember. They don't accept yeah. it. Yes. As yes. You yes, don't know. Yes, you don't point. remember. You do have a name. Mm. you just don't remember it i really, really liked that call. that was a nice detail yeah very cool if you i would say if you're interested more in some of the backstory around this and around callie reese herself listen to episode two of the official podcast uh there's a nice interview with callie reese who talks a bunch about her own personal past where she's from how she introduces herself it's really it's really insightful as to who this actor is and, and somebody who I really hope we're going to see more of in, in more future work because she's got chops, man. Yeah, I think she's great. So Leah meets with her girlfriend and they attend a rally to protest the mine. Leah gets made when she accepts a T-shirt from another protester. The crowd hears of another stillborn birth. Again, they're really emphasizing the effect that the absence of Annie Kay has had on the community. Mm, That's a really good point. It's very sad. Yeah. Yeah. The um, idea of the mine and the connectivity to birth rates in the community uh, I heard some other people talking about this. I heard uh, Jim on the Bald Move talk uh, podcast was talking about this as well. And at first I didn't see it really, but now I do with this scene. It's like, oh yeah. And what you're saying is, you know, this whole midwife thing, it's it's totally connected to it. And it comes up later in the in the in a in a scene in a couple of um in a couple steps from here. Yeah. So on the door of the warehouse. 
there's a sort of a sea goddess like motif inspired artwork, which is very reminiscent uh, calls to the artwork that Leah has on her walls. And I don't know if that is really there or if they put that there, but again, it just made me think of the whole Sedna theory of, of, you know, the mm. sea goddess and, and that, how that plays into the uh, storyline so far. Yeah, that's cool. And again, uh, diegetic and complementary music moving in and out of here. So as we move out uh, of this scene, right, it, the 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 music of the people singing, and then the music to give us the 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 emotional tenor of the the scene moves in and out of the space. So very cool. Liz reviews the case file while listening to White Noise. She puts an uncooked turkey back into the fridge and hear and she hears a weird sound but then is distracted when Leah comes home. They have an argument and Liz forces Leah to wipe the markings off her face, which is awful. And, but, but again, I really love the way that they construct the scene where you find out, Oh, it's not that she like hates this population. She's scared for Leah. She's like, wow, this is, yes, this is the target demographic that gets hurt. Yep. And that's rough. And there's the picture of Annie Kay with those markings. Mm-hmm. And I can't that's what help. I mean. Yeah, that's what exactly. I mean is, is that's exactly what's on her mind. Yeah, that's why she's saying get the marks off is I don't want you dying like her. Yeah, I don't want you ending up like that. I think there's another photo of Annie Kay with the, the black ink stains on her face, you know, part of the protest, you know, what the protesters mm-hmm. put on there. Uh, so, yeah, she's just terrified that Leah and and. It's really interesting because her violent reaction, you're like, well, wait a minute. Didn't you have uh, an Anupiak partner? Didn't you have a a son with that guy? How could you be so racist and antagonistic? Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, you were in a relationship and lived in, you know, obviously lived in some sort of community where that was around. So what's with the reaction? And I think it... Very much has to go to with her trauma response and then also her fears for uh, her stepdaughter mm-hmm. and that she's just not able to be res- a, a responsible parent and translate those <laughs> those emotions and impulses into constructive parenting work. Right. Right. She doesn't have those tools. Well, I also think two things can be true. She can be racist and she could be afraid for you know, the reasons of, of seeing Annie Kay and others suffer. Right. You know, the, it can both be true. It's not that it absolves her of the way that she's acting right now just I, because I she's seen other things. Yeah, I, I, I she's certainly saying and doing racist things. The question is, is she a racist in her heart? Like if she really believes in the superiority of, of her race or something like that, that's I don't think she's that I think she's just being a crass, insensitive person who's hurt and just using whatever she can to bash people or emotionally bash people around to keep herself isolated so she never has to deal with the pain of her life. Hmm. Does that I make see sense? That. Yeah. Yeah. No, I buy it. Yeah. All right. As Navarro leaves Kavik's shanty, she has a vision of a young boy running away on the ice. She slips and hits her head, has a combined flashback and waking dream. A voice says, listen, and then a young Inupiaq boy tells her to tell his mommy something, which uh, we could not make it out. Yeah, I, I couldn't make it out either. I was going to bring this up in the podcast. I see mm-hmm. that you wrote here that you couldn't make it out. Yeah. 
and we don't have subtitles in our screeners, so uh, so we're stuck with it. Yep. Yeah. But I, wa- it I watched it like three times. I was like, I'm going to get this. I'm going to get it this time. I put on my headphones and everything, tried to turn it up. And yeah, no, I couldn't make it out. So so my question is, is what kind of ghost is this? Is this the ghost that misses you? Is this the ghost that needs to tell you something? Or is this the I, ghost I think it's that the one that to has to tell you something. Got it. That's what I, I, think. I think so. Yeah. And this scene feels really like her past military time, which is where she saw the, sol- the other soldier, where we saw a vision of the other soldier with their, their head blown off. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I like this idea that Peter fell on the ice, and that's a whole other story. But here she is, you know, a pretty competent woman, you know, used to living in the Arctic, and she falls on the ice? Like, that's mm-hmm. kind of ridiculous. But it's a great little play they, they're playing with the, the characters in this way it rhymes i think somebody says that at maybe one of our feedbacks that the the show is rhyming these are all sort of rhyming couplets yeah yeah that's a good way to to put that i i think that even within this episode there are a bunch of rhyming couplets and yeah uh you know i first of all i think anyone whether you live in in an arctic place all the time or not you know we all make clumsy moves where we're surprised by something and we don't totally. think about what's going on behind, underneath our feet. And uh, also I will point out Navarro did not grow up here. She lived in Boston. Right. So maybe, maybe she exactly. doesn't have her snow legs just yet. <laughs> Hopefully long enough anyway. <laughs> yeah. Although somebody's going to write and be like, Boston is snowy. Don't tell me. Yeah. It's not snowy <laughs> like that though. I'm going to tell you Bostonians just don't even don't at me. As Navarro walks to her car. She gets a call about her sister who has had an episode. Evangeline finds Jules out on the ice at the site of an old shipwreck. Don't drink in boat is what the graffiti on the, <laughs> the Hulk of the shipwreck says. That's fair. That's fair. I think Jules is getting worse. I'm, I'm worried. I, I, mm-hmm. the, the up, they're going to, th- this would be a very true detective thing is to up tempo the situation with an outside family member, somebody outside of the case. And mm-hmm. then that's going to pressurize the, the detective in, and that's going to affect the way that the, the whole story comes together. But is it that her mental illness is getting worse or is it that the spirits are reaching out more? Because so, there is this question yes, of yes, how much of her experience is, mental illness or how much of it is connection with her. She is awake. Right. With the spirit world. And, and that's what Rose cautions us. You know, you got to be able to tell the difference, you know, yeah. don't get them mixed together. And I think with Jules, it's ambiguous uh, schizophrenia mm-hmm. and other um, uh, crippling diseases like this can be genetically passed down even though they're not sure exactly all the mechanics. Mm-hmm. So, but there is a, there, there can be a, a fa- familiar history of, of these kinds of things. And so that's this fear that's, that's really pressing down on both Jules and uh, Navarro, I think. But then who can say like, well, maybe that, maybe both are true, right? Absolutely. Maybe both are true that Jules is. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it has to be that. I think mm. it's it's some some balance in between, right? So because she's talking about something coming, isn't she? This mm. whole time, right. she's like something's right. coming, and she's right. She's right. Something is coming. Hey man, we in, just don't in, know what it is yet. Everybody sees ghosts in Ennis, right? That's yeah. That's what we do. It's our pastime. <laughs> so 
there is some great lighthouse imagery going on here. Uh, Navarro on the ice with her flashlight and then an airport beacon. And there's some talk uh, from season one stuff with the Tuttle family and some of the things that they did in uh, in uh, in season one and some Reddit detectives and, and on some other podcasts, they're talking about a cross connection. Does this lighthouse facility that gets mentioned at least mm. twice uh, I, or maybe three times even Navarro and Rose and then Navarro with um, with uh, Jules uh, a couple of times saying, oh, go to the lighthouse, go to the lighthouse. And there are some people who are theorizing possibly that the um, that there's some sinister things happening with the the lighthouse facility, even though we haven't mm. seen uh, that or not. But, you know, is it part of the Tuttle uh, pedophilia ring um, that that uh, encompasses a lot of the earlier seasons? Hmm. Well, I don't know anything about that. So correct. I'm just putting that out there for yeah. those who do know. So, yep. you can add. All me. right. You can add me with your theories on that. <laughs> just don't at me. Uh, Peter comes home late or early, which who knows in the long night, and accidentally wakes up his family. He gets their son back to sleep. He and Kayla fight about the hold Danvers has over him. They're interrupted by a phone call with Danvers from Danvers, and Pete checks his phone. Rookie move, man. Checking your phone. <laughs> Do not Rookie walk move. away in that fight. You just let the phone ring and yep. you stay locked in on that conversation. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm pretty good about staying quiet when a baby's asleep because, you know, I've, I've had two babies. There was one time where we were staying at my in-laws for a few days visiting and I completely forgot that my daughter was sleeping in a specific room. Mm-hmm. And I burst in to go get my suitcase. And she looked at me like, why? And I went, oh, man. Nope. That's the only time I've ever woken up one of my children like that. And I felt so awful. And I can, I really empathize with Peter here. Uh, we used to, when, when our daughter was still uh in you know stroller age when we had to walk around with her stroller and stuff in her room i couldn't get the stroller in just straight i had to kind of do it tip it up but there was this because i would let her just sleep in the stroller like why take her Mm -hmm. out and put her in the in the crib but there was this one creaky floorboard (laughs) that i had to like (laughs) indiana jones every time Mm -hmm. and i don't know maybe i had about a 60 percent success rate but yeah you know, a number of times that, that squeak. And then she'd be like, hello, I'm awake. And I'm like, no, you were in Brooklyn at the time. Right. So yeah, we were. Yeah. I'm surprised because my, my daughter, I mean, we lived on a noisy street in Harlem uh, when, when she was young and she could sleep through like anything. She sure can. Yep. Fire engines, police cars, all of that stuff she would sleep through. But if I squeaked on this one floorboard, it like a switch turned her back on. That's funny. That's funny. That one, that one trigger. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah uh, i mean yeah. peter's not not batting a thousand on his family life right now i think he's he's going into toxic cop syndrome mm-hmm. as they say yep and he's really following in the footsteps of of danvers which is a uh, shame right i think i think he thinks that that's what a good cop is because that's mm-hmm. the example that that's she set models. for him yep yep a and good cop puts being a cop over everything and is cold to everyone and hates everyone 
later on, this comes up when he's talking to his cousin at the Corpsicle. It, it, it happened before when Leah was visiting the ice rink. He's very fine with the being around the, the Corpsicle and seeing this horrific death and dealing with all the stuff. He's just all matter of fact about it. It's the same thing with surgeons, right? You just kind of got to yep. get used to the gore. Yep. And, but, and yet he comes home and, and, you know, Kayla says, look, you were a goofy guy who made me laugh. That's who I fell in love with. And whatever this thing is, is becoming, I, I don't know what this is. I don't. So is I, I, I think that's the problem, right? Is like, he doesn't realize that you can be multiple people, yeah, that you can be this multifaceted person, that you can be Danvers in the kitchen. Even Danvers is multifaceted, but he doesn't get to see that side of her. So he right. thinks she's like that all the time. Right. She's not, oh, good point. Good she's point. not the the mom in the kitchen with the with right. the uh you know the mac and cheese. She's not the woman seducing Christopher Eccleston. Uh, <laughs> she's she's just his stern boss who hates everyone. Right. Right. And he does. That's his model. That's what he's he's modeling after. Yep. Really great scene. Such an emotional gut punch. And the acting between these two actors was just spot on. So mm-hmm. good. So good. And like I said, Boomer, all text cap. Well, all, <laughs> Did you all, find all capital text? <laughs> not a question. Great. Not a question. As a, it's a command. <laughs> you know, there was no question mark at the end of it. It was, you know, have you completed this task? Do it. You know, the impl- the implication of do mm. it if not done is is like lands yep. on you with both feet. Yep. The song I Follow Rivers by Marika Hackman bridges scenes and we look in on Navarro getting her sister settled. We then drift over to see Danvers in deep thought and then drift again to a beautiful drone shot of Ennis on December 23rd, the sixth day of night. Again, several days from the White Walkers, at least. (laughs) I don't know if there's a lot to say about this. No, nothing to say. It's more of a a nice little transition. So I guess we'll we'll move on to uh, we join a group of Inupiaq women sitting in a kind of shiva or wake for a woman who just lost her baby when Danvers shows up. Feeling overcome with emotion, she goes to the bathroom, and when she washes her hand, gray sludge water comes out of the tap. Yikes. Yeah. Yikes. And and we know that she learned of this stillbirth, right, from her daughter throwing it out in an argument. Earlier. Exactly. Yeah. And she goes there, and, you know, I, I, I was just really struck with this thought that loss and grief they're they're not commodities that you can measure or you can trade or compare like you have grief i have grief danvers is feeling grief he's she's feeling grieved and so what do you do you go and you be in community but yeah she's a total you know jerk to these people even kayla's mother is sitting in there who she called a laundromat grandmother right so um (laughs) But grief is grief, and she's trying to find some solace and trying to find something, you know, because she's also lost a child, right? So, and she's the chief of police of this town. Like, you know, it's it's a complex situation, and and that she goes to try to feel something and to connect with something, again, just really great complexity in the character and, and Jodie Foster's portrayal. Yeah, really great. And, and then just the importance of the of rituals around death. 
you know, around how do we, how do we grieve? We've got these overwhelming emotional feelings. Mm-hmm. How do we manage them? Well, we create ritual, right? And right. I really loved earlier when we're at the protest. So let's have a moment of silence, but then the music starts. Yeah. And the right. music brings you back in emotionally and everyone keeps their heads bowed and just lets it wash over them. And then the music carries us into this scene as well. Mm-hmm. And all the way through this scene. Uh, so it's just really, again, moving us between the worlds of our viewership and what's happening in the story. And it's it just really a, a smooth transition on that boundary. It's, it's really, yeah. it's really an interesting construction. At one point we're about to do our rogue one podcast for our star Wars film festival. We're watching all the star Wars films in, in order, and so I was doing my notes on Rogue One the other day, and there's a scene where Saw Gerrera says to Jin Erso, you know, like, you know, how can you, how can you handle the idea of the Imperial flag, you know, over, over everything? And she says, easy, if you just don't look up. So earlier, right. you know, when that really emotional scene of Leah saying to Danvers, like, I just want you to care. And she says, like, I do care. But in all the other scenes, like she doesn't really care about the mind. She doesn't really care about the the well-being, the health and well-being of the community being poisoned by the mind. And this is a moment where she looks up to see the imperial flag flying over, you know, uh, her community when she goes to wash her hands and this like nasty water comes out. It's like, yeah. oh, he- hello, this is real, right? This isn't just a bunch of uh, people who want to spoil for a fight. You know, there's people here actually fighting for right. The health of their community and you're at the wake of a child who probably was stillborn because of you know right. what's going on here being right like who life. wouldn't protest if that was coming out of their sink exactly my god it's crazy it's crazy yeah. and she just takes for granted that she lives probably in the closest thing to upscale that this town has right <laughs> right you know, small right. it's probably not that you know big of a geographical divide no but uh you know i'm sure there's a big standard of living divide between those who have and those who have not right we cut scene to the frozen faces of two of the scientists thawing out at the ice rink. Peter talks with his cousin, Vince, who's a veterinarian they have brought in to help with the forensics. Danvers arrives, and we learn that the scientists probably died of fright before they were frozen. Navarro arrives with info about Tagak. So this guy, Vince, references seeing scared caribou who were running and died in fright. So that ties back to the opening scene of episode one. Yeah. So the clues are starting to collect here, right? They're starting to amass. So that's not a empty scene that doesn't go anywhere. It actually connects. Yeah. I like that a lot. I didn't think about that, but you're, you're absolutely right. This, this whole idea of, uh, you know, the nature is running from this thing and so are the humans now. Right. Right. Because we are a part of nature as much as we like to deny it. It's true. Um, Peter seems a little crestfallen here when uh, Navarro comes in with the big win. So it's like they're kind of both vying now for Danvers' uh, affection and approval. Don't tell Navarro that. She'll punch you in the face. <laughs> she probably would. But Peter <laughs> failed, right? And he's like, well, you know, how do you, how do you not uh, mess up with Danvers? Don't fail. 
not everything's on the internet, kid, or something. That's right. She says something so snarky. It's like, okay, but a lot of things are. So, yeah. but I, I, I see the point, right? It's, yeah. it's, uh, you know, we we end up relying so much on the internet that we sometimes forget that sometimes it, it's helpful to go to a library. Yeah, and Peter's really good <laughs> or at just that to stuff. ask around, right? Yeah, getting, getting, getting. Uh, yeah, he's he's working the credit history. He's getting phones unlocked. He's tracking down all kinds of leads. He uncovered the money. So he's really good as that kind of research detective where mm-hmm. Navarro's out uh, using the, you know, what does she say to uh, Kavik? Uh, bootlegging comes with a, a network. Homebrew comes with a network, right? So <laughs> I think that uh, Peter is very much the Alfred to Navarro's Batman. I there think that they would work very well together. <laughs> good, good analogy. Uh, we go to a hunting cap next. On the ice, and Navarro and Danvers receive a cold welcome, as, as is very easy to receive over here. Yeah. They enter Tagak's shanty, and he is not pleased to talk with them, but he seems disturbed at the news of the death of the scientists. As they leave the hunting camp, they get a message from the hospital regarding Lund. Interesting, in the opening montage of, of the hunting camp scenes, mm-hmm. we see a woman doing the licking of the thread as she's yeah, licking yeah, on yeah. the nets. So the, nice. The whole thing Again, that gets Annie Kay's exactly. tongue like that. So I love this thing that Lopez is doing is she's setting up certain things or talking about certain things, and then inevitably it comes up and we see it and we see evidence of it and it's connected. So we get the whole picture and then we feel smart. Oh, look, there it is. We do the uh, Leo gif, right? Or the pointing. Oh, look, you know, there's a woman mm-hmm. licking, you know, her tongue. So we feel good about the show. So really smart show making. Yeah, I mean, I I um, I thought this was a great setup piece for this. We didn't learn a lot uh, from Oliver, but I think that we will get a lot more as it goes on. I think he's going to get scared into talking at some point. Yeah, he's definitely going to be coming back for for sure. There's no question. And again, he asks Navarro, "Who are you?" And she and you. I think you pointed this out that you know she doesn't know, and he's he doesn't accept that. Right, accept right, that right, right. Yeah, yeah. So. This is where that happens. I already I already said my piece about that, but I think it's I think it's cool. It's assuming that you have a name, right? You have it, right? I, I think of Earthsea, right? Mm-hmm. Earthsea, you you have a true name, even if you don't know it. Somebody's just got to tell it to you, right? Yeah, they got to figure it out. Interesting issue here where he jacks around into the shotgun. It's like, uh, yeah, they don't have a lot of legal ground apparently to stand on here. So they have to back out. I mean, in most other situations, <laughs> that would end very differently uh, in our in our modern age. Um, but they they back off, which I think is really interesting in this whole question of traditional versus modern legal um, uh, contrivances for ownership and, and property distribution. And, you know, he's, he's clear. He's like, you don't have the right kind of authority to step on to this is traditional land. And Liz tries to push back on him, but um, ultimately it doesn't work. Yeah. And there's a whole, a whole lot of stuff. And I don't know how impacted Alaska was, but there's a whole lot of stuff and probably, probably not in the same way because we didn't have uh, jurisdiction over Alaska when the uh, apportionment of native lands was happening when the splitting mm-hmm. up of it. But I don't, I don't know how much you know about this, David, but there's a whole issue across the U.S. where basically Congress was giving pieces of land. They decided to parcel out land that belonged to indigenous communities. 
to individuals. So they, they, and they said, oh, we're giving it all to indigenous communities uh, as individuals now instead of as a whole plot. Right, right. And right. so they would give you one 50 miles away from your other half of your plot. Right, right. So it right. was impossible to visit it often. Yeah, really nasty. Yeah, using, and if you didn't uh, visit it for a certain amount of time, you lost you lose it. it. Yeah. And they would sell it to a non-indigenous person. And that's that's how they did the whole thing. And and it's gross. And and there's huge fights about it even to this day. And there's big legal battles that I hope people will read up on. But yeah, land ownership in indigenous communities is a huge, huge issue in the U.S. Yeah. And and using the tools of the state to uh, to affect a policy. Right. Yeah. This is this is a this is a policy decision um, hidden by um Oh, we're doing it for your own good, kind of thing, and right. it's like, no, no, this is all about. It's a poison uh, pill, right? Yeah, completely, completely. The uh, I don't know why they turned on their lights and their sirens because <laughs> they your lights and your sirens are to, are to warn other vehicles on the road that you're traveling at high speed and that you're, <laughs> you know, taking over the right of way. I, I I don't know who that's for out there, but well, I will say it made for a beautiful shot as the uh, maybe the that's truck why was driving down the snow. <laughs> maybe that's why I don't know. I don't know. I I've, I've seen plenty of sirens go on to pass a red light and then turn off. Yeah, you've seen yeah. That. There are, uh, which, and it, it it it's it it's both real and uh, 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 a use of uh, the lights inappropriately. Sometimes yeah. people get calls and they start on them and then they get called off the call. And so yeah, you know, it's, it's it's amazing though that they get the call right before right when they get to the red light <laughs> and then it, it gets canceled right after they pass it. It's really weird. Uh, anyway, maybe maybe somebody could write in and explain that for us. Uh, anyway, anyway, at the hospital, they encounter Lund, who is not in good shape. As they question him, they are interrupted by a fight happening in the lobby with the hillbillies, of course. Yep. And Lund speaks to Navarro, then dies. Ooh, this scene, man, when he sits up like the hairs, I know you see, you're a, you're a veteran of horror, so I don't, I don't watch a lot of horror as you, but when he sat up. The hairs on the back of my neck stood up, and I was like, "Oh, mine is his sort of ice burnt eyes, and his, you know, um, his uh, what do you call it? The uh, frost bitten fingers, blackened fingers. Man, mm-hmm. it really, it really affected me uh, in in a great way for the show. I should say, really. I'm uh, really glad it did. For me, I was like. Pfft. <laughs> um, this is that, amateur there there was that plus no it's not that it wasn't scary enough i was just like oh overdone trope oh my uh-huh. god okay that between that and the whole like found footage thing of annie k where she's like my name is annie. oh right if anyone finds this and then right <laughs> at that moment she gets taken away i was like okay right let's just let's just not well, I guess we can just kind of wrap up both of this, uh, this in the final scene. So yeah, yeah. So Peter is, of course, waiting for them in the lobby with Annie's phone, and we see a video of her last moments. The camera pulls back as we listen to Annie's screams. So okay, again, th- going from Lund to to Annie's screams totally affected me. It worked. I was in all the way for this, and I just was. That's great. Sort of less stunned at the end of the episode. And I love the way she just took the horror um, knob and the mystery knob and the beautiful production values and just cranked all of those suckers all the way up to 11. 
I was completely blown away by by the double whammy of the scene. Well, that's great. I and I think I think for most people it'll work. Yeah. Let's hope. Uh for me, I I was just like I and yeah. I really do think it's a me problem. Yeah, of, yeah. I'm just so desensitized to these. And maybe not even desensitized. It's just that I've seen so many of these tropes so much. Like I was do you know what I think of with the found footage stuff is not the Blair Witch Project, right. but the parody of the Blair Witch Project on The Office where Michael Scott is trying to make a training video for his new employees. And he goes, I am so scared when people don't label their personal food items in the fridge. <laughs> and and it's it's just stupid. You know, it's just, right, it's right. just like that's what so I it's think been of. done over. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. That said. Uh, let's talk about Lund and then talk a little bit about Annie Kay. Uh, what does she say? Uh, what does he say? We woke her. She's out there in the ice, I think is what it is. I really want the subtitles to really decipher what he says, but like she's in the ice, which then later when we see Annie Kay, it seems like she's in the ice. It seems like she's in some sort of ice cave. Yeah. And yeah, she found, she found it. it. Yeah, that that was spooky. So like parts of it were spooky to me. I just wish that it wasn't like if anyone gets this message, I right. whoa. <laughs> that that's the part where I was like, all right, yeah, yeah right that, at, that's fine. Right at the convenient time, right. fine. But fine. what does it mean, right? That's the question. Like, you know, what are what what does that what does that bode for the rest of the season? Yeah. There's some sort of hidden chamber out there that you know we've mm-hmm. got. Yet to see what is was Lund a, a waking dream? Obviously, it was the third kind of ghost, the one that wants to take you with them. Mm-hmm. You know, was he dead or was that a spirit talking through him? Uh, I I don't think it was real. I think it was a waking dream, like she's been having. Yep. So I don't know uh, your your thoughts on on some of those parts of it. No, I think I think something was real there. I think she found something tangible. Mm-hmm. Any K, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure, yeah, yeah. She's oh, somewhere you're, you're saying? I'm sorry. You're saying that Navarro's thing was a waking dream? Yes. Listen okay. To yeah, um, yeah. I don't know. I think very possible, but I think if it was, it was something. I think it was something real. I don't think it was mental illness. I think it was something real mm-hmm. happening to her, even if it was in her mind. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure, for sure. That 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 uh, again. It was like the orange being thrown or or being visited by the little boy. This is all the spirit world stuff talking to her. So I think this is the third was what I was saying is that that this is the third kind of ghost, right? The one who's not so benevolent or just misses you. Yeah. Because he says, you know, your mother's waiting for you in hell. And like, that's not a nice thing to say, right? No, certainly not. Right. And then, yeah, what did what did Annie find? Right. So that's our next big uh, question mark and i think the way that lopez is working the season it's not well and we only have three episodes left so it's going to be not long before we find the answers to those uh, those questions i i hope so and i am glad that it's a shorter season i was a little nervous at first because i felt like it was going at lightning speed mm-hmm. but i felt like this episode finally found the rhythm right, right. and i'm really glad it did because I'm, yeah. I'm having a much better time this week Cool. It might it might come out in in the way I'm I've been more positive about the show this week, but yeah, I definitely had a much better time watching it. Cool. All right. Well, we get some cool mysteries uh, for for the next episodes. Indeed. But first, we have to take a quick break before we get to listener feedback.
And we're back. We've got a pretty decent trove of feedback, or perhaps a shanty of feedback, if you will. <laughs> Shanties full of feedback. A shanty. Right, a shanty full of feedback. First um, off, you can send we'll, emails. Yes, there you go. That's what I was going to say. To, oh, let me finish, David. All here. right. Interrupt sorry, my sorry. shantying. <laughs> you can send emails to truedetective at thelorehounds.com. You can go to our website, thelorehounds.com, head to the contact page, leave us a, a voicemail even. We love getting voicemails. Nobody ever does them, but uh, when, when they come in, they're, they're quite a delight. Or you can just send us a contact form entry if you're, if you're a little shy about getting on the air. That's fine. And of course, you can always go to our Discord server if you want to chat with us in real time. Garnet L sent in an email to us, a quick one that said, just listen to the first episode podcast where it was erroneously stated that Night Country was filmed in Greenland. No, it's Iceland. Mea culpa. That was me. I had uh, my Greenlands and my Icelands mixed up. And uh, I think in do. the, the uh, second episode uh, podcast, I think I corrected that, but... That is accurate. The the uh, choice to film in Iceland too was based on the fact that they had uh, a better infrastructure already set up there to to handle mm. film production. So interesting, makes sense. Yep, cool. Thanks, thanks, Garnet. Yep, hope you you send in some more feedback. But uh, thanks for for clarifying that. So, Loremaster Bettina W wrote in via Patreon and said, "Hey, Lorehounds. Hey, Bettina." So after season four, episode one of True Detective, I did a rewatch of season one and listened to a bunch of podcasts from back then. I'm truly amazed by how much depth, in-depth speculation about little details in the background of a particular shot was going around in the show. And half of it never went anywhere, <laughs> which is fine with me because I don't think everything has to be connected or mean something. But apparently a lot of fans back then were pretty upset about that stuff. So much show that so that the creators came forward in some interviews telling people that this or that was never intended to go anywhere. Yeah, just to comment here on it really quick. The apparently even the spiral was just something that wasn't even necessarily central to the show. And it goes into this whole idea that what was Nick Pizzolato, the original showrunner, trying to do? Was he trying to make cosmic horror? Or was he just trying to make a detective story? that had a guy who was a little bit, you know, off his rocker slightly. Mm -hmm. And I think what caught everybody by surprise in which, um, hurt seasons two and three, but season two had its own issues where th season three got back on some good rails and had some nice vibes to it, but it didn't have cosmic horror vibes. And so I, I think that's where people get all churned up. The, the stands for season one, are legion and they're vocal. <laughs> it's the best thing ever. <laughs> and you know, la da 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 da. And people watch it all the time, annual ritual, whatever. So it's a it's a fair point. I don't think that Pizzolato, when he was making it, the first one, realized the uh, depth and breadth that it was going to affect people to take it to make it this kind of totemic thing. It's kind of like. Um, you know, the Rocky Horror Picture Show just keeps on going. People keep watching it. The people keep reviving the culture of it. And I don't think the people, when they made Rocky Horror Picture Show, meant it to be the longest running, you know, movie ever, right? And and all the subculture that came up around it. So I think that is really what's going on. People are like, well, why didn't you service us fans the way that we want to be serviced? It's like, well, because I didn't know you guys were going to freak out about it when I made it, right? I was making a detective story not a, a way of life, a philosophy, if you will. So mm. fair enough. 
Bettina continues, now looking at the heavily clue and lore-loaded first episode of season four, I'm wondering if we as an audience, but also the creators, are falling into that same trap again. I'm a lore person, and I enjoy turning over every rock to see what's under, but I still feel... Indeed. But I still feel that this first episode was trying to do too much in that regard, and it felt a little forced. Having said all that, if they don't pay off the whole Travis Alaska Rust Cole thing, I will be upset. Yes, I know there must be more than one man living in Alaska called Travis, but with the physical resemblance and the fact that in season one, we were explicitly told that Rust's father's name was Travis and they used to live in Alaska, I kind of feel cheated if it doesn't go anywhere. Right now, I'm willing to go along with whatever they throw at me. I just hope the show doesn't lose itself in all the callbacks or new lore at the expense of a cohesive and interesting story. Looking forward to your coverage. Sunny greetings, Bettina. Sunny. Sunny. There's no sun here. There's no sun here. (laughs) So she's vibing what you were saying with uh, episode one. Just a lot of work. But also tell me about this Russ Cole thing. Yeah, that's the the big thing. He was the character that everybody completely were enamored with in season one. It's the Woody Harrelson's uh, performance is fine, but it, it didn't light the world on fire. It was Russ mm-hmm. Cole's uh, melancholy, philosophic, you know, Nietzsche spouting, uh, badass detective, you know, who... Uh, does some really there's some really wild scenes there's a whole side quest of season one that's just out of the blue and it's kind of out of control but you know it's something that they had to do to it was like a side quest that they had to get to complete the main quest thing and oh it's matthew matthew mcconaughey yeah it's mcconaughey so and this is one of his iconic roles this is one of the roles that really i think he had just done dallas buyers club uh so this was right after i could be wrong I know I can just check the internets, but um, yeah, I believe that was the sequence. So, you know, it was a real rising star moment for him. And people were just like, whoa, who is this Russ Cole character? This is amazing. And then we've got the tiebacks like we talked about in last episode where the ghost Travis uh, it, were being made to believe that this is Rust's father. A whole bunch of clues were laid down in, in season one about Rust being from Alaska, about going back to Alaska for about eight year time frame that happens within the story of season one. And um, so what I think Lopez did was she went back and consumed all of the true detective stuff in there and then started using, you know, parts of the Buffalo to, you know, make her story. And so she found these hard point connections where she could go, great, I'm going to attach here and here and here. Um, And then again, the question is, is this, is this stuff determinative or is, I can't say that word. Um, or you is it, it <laughs> is it Easter egg? It doesn't sound right in my head. It's that, <laughs> that weird thing where the sound doesn't, the word and the sound don't make sense mm, with each yeah. other. Um, and so the question is, is this just, are these just cool Easter eggs? Are they going to pay off in some way? Is there going to be some larger noir based mystery where the, you know, the sinister forces are, are much bigger and wider. People are already complaining about the Tuttles. Well, the Tuttles were just a, you know, a, a quasi-religious organization in the South. What are they doing in Alaska? And other people are like, well, it's part of the global ring of pedophiles and cultists that they're involved in. And so um, whatever whatever actually ultimately results at the end of the season, the fact is, is that 
I think Lopez has successfully conjoined the two seasons and, you know, it's, uh, and it's fired up the, it's fired everybody up as, as, as in ways that they were hoping to be fired up, even though they may be complaining about it. Well, it's not as good as season one. They're still actively engaged in the show as much as, uh, we or anyone else is, you know, who, who are loving the mm. season. So cool. Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing if that pays off and maybe I'll watch season one once this is done. But I want to I want to stay virgin eyed. Yes. While I'm through this season. For sure. All right. Thank you again, Bettina, for writing. Thank you, in. Bettina. Always, always a pleasure to hear from I you. I had a fun back and forth with her. We were chatting on the on the Patreon message. thing. Cool. So, yeah. Shouts Very to Bettina. Nice. Our old friend Al Chalant wrote into true detective at the lorehounds.com and said most Mandela effect things. That's, again, the effect that I brought up last episode of you know, a large group of people misremembering something that happened. So most Mandela effect things, Al Chalant says, especially the ones regarding misquoted dialogue in movies and TV are misremembered from comedian impersonation. Hmm. This is something interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Does the Luke, I am your father into the oscillating desk fan in Tommy boy. Lucy, you got some spraining, spraining to do. Splaining, splaining. It's a typo. It, it's thing. okay. Splaining yeah. to do. Lucy, you got some splaining to do. Yeah, says, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, I've, yeah, I've, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I just thought that it was a deliberate because I'm, it's all about misremembering things. I didn't know if it was a deliberate changing of it. Right. Uh, is another one used by comedians impersonating Ricky Ricardo using a line never uttered in I Love Amazing. Lucy. That's, yeah. that's crazy. That's like the whole <laughs> That's bit. it. That's right there. Jim Carrey does a lot of character impersonations in The Cable Guy. SNL sketches do this all the time, too. I try to bring this up anytime someone cites Mandela Effect to point out how comedy can alter original memories of quotes in pop culture and entertainment. That's fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. That is comedy is the mechanism that the uh, vector, you know, it's the vector for the virus to transmute, mm-hmm. you know, that's well, it's very the- cool. Isn't it a thing, you know, and I don't know, maybe maybe somebody who's into like neuroscience can tell us the actual details of it. But this idea of like you remember the last time you remembered something, right? Mm, You're not remembering. Yeah. You don't have a very good memory for the first time it happened. Yeah. Memory is reconstructed, right? We're, yeah. our, our neurons are constantly reconstructing our, our memories. So it's, yeah. it's a which I think is really great part of two. That is season three of Two Detective. What is memory? And who mm-hmm. are you if your memories are changed? Uh, that That's a very cool aspect of, of season three of True Detective. Right. Cool. All right. Uh, Al Chalant continues. Otherwise, I'll leave my episode two comments below. Personally, True Detective is one of my favorite podcast shows, and I'm so glad it's yes. back. Season three of True Detective really got me into following weekly podcasts on TV series as a mystery. It was so much fun hearing the theories between each episode as the plot progressed, and I'm so glad to have that back again for the next six weeks. So there was another element of the Travis Cole season one Easter egg reveal that had me uh, Leo meme pointing at the (laughs) TV for uh, 30 seconds before the actual name drop. The other detail we knew about Russ's dad, besides his name, Travis, and that he lives in Alaska, was that he had leukemia. Yep. So... For me, the name drop later in the conversation was just like a 100% confirmed after I had already lined up the pieces. That's and cool. That, and that makes you feel good, right? And you're like, oh, I like this show because this show made me feel smart. <laughs> yeah. It's exactly yeah. what that is. That's good And stuff. 
there's later when uh, Navarro is talking to Chuck Molina, the the guy from the bar, and she says like, "Well, why didn't you tell me?" And he's like, "Oh, you know, well, I just don't like you, ma'am." He says, "My cousin died of bone cancer. That's mm. leukemia." So no, I not. was like, "Leo, mean pointing." I was like, "That's Russ Cole's bone cousin." Cancer isn't leukemia, yeah. Right? Leukemia yeah. isn't leukemia is a blood cancer. Yeah, it's a blood cancer. It's from the bones. Where is your blood blood made? It's made from your blood, your bones. Bone marrow. It's like uh, I don't know. I don't know. I want I want an oncologist to write in now. I don't know if I'd call leukemia. <laughs> hey, didn't we have a doctor cancer. in Ireland who used to yeah. w- from from the, we the did. Last of Us? We days? did. I don't know yeah. if they followed us, but maybe right maybe if you're there, please return. Uh, and then uh, Al Shalant continues. You guys did a good job covering the show so far and don't have much else to add about the content about the show, of the show. But I have one comment on the show's structure. We have gone down in episode count from eight to six for season four. So it seems like important clues are coming at a much faster pace. I'm looking forward to the mid-season revelations and plot twists coming sooner, like perhaps next week or the week after in episodes three and four, instead of how they usually pop up in around five and six. I, I think that's confirmed now, John, because <laughs> yes. we're recording episode three right now. I would say so. I would say so. And then uh, Al sent in a PS. Season one, episode six, Russ Cole questions Tuttle about private school records where students went missing. Documents were, quote, lost in a flood. Jump to season four and Hank relocates case files, including at least one native woman's murder after a flood. Sounds like Tuttle M.O., Maybe that's maybe the little bit of money left that Hank dictates to text message was his payoff. Yeah, I think we're we're leaning toward the payoff at least. Yeah. I don't know about this Tuttle guy, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. If they aren't going to totally connect these stories, they are for sure at least making a big effort to make them rhyme and reflect on each other. That's it. That it was Al Shalant who who brought up the rhyming uh, uh, idea that this sh- that a lot of the details not only internally within the show but across seasons are, are rhymes. Uh, this is where it came from. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks, Al. That's a, that's a good piece of feedback. That had a lot of interesting bits in it. Mandela effect, stuff on yeah. season one. I, I learned a lot there. Well, hopefully uh, Al Shalant will be writing in again because they are into the uh, the fun that this is a podcaster show, right? This is yeah, the kind of yeah. shows that we pray for. Indeed. Indeed. Aaron K, who recently boosted the Discord server, wrote in totally, on Discord. Thank you. And, and who is a Duna Dine? Duna, what's the singular? Duna Dan. Duna Dan. Mm-hmm. Dan, the Dune. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, on the Discord, wrote in, I am also looking for more explanation of Danvers' reaction to her adopted daughter's expression of heritage. Well, there you go. I think you got it. Uh, with the picture of Annie K right after she tells her off about it. I'm sure we will get more explanation as the season goes on, but it seems to go a bit further than simple ignorance or racism. Although perhaps that is it, as Navarro seems to have made a few comments about Danvers that point to her being a bit bigoted. So, yeah, I think we talked a bunch about this already. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I really do think it's Danvers is an asshole. Um, she's got trauma response. She's deeply and, and hurt. And is a bit of a bigot. I'm not going to excuse not going to. Yeah, uh, yeah. Agreed. It's... Agreed. But a racist versus a bigot. I, like, I, I don't think she th- believes in the superiority of races. I think she's just a jerk. Well, but here's, here's what I'll say about that. 
racism is not a binary. It's That's not, true. It's I'm, I'm a racist spectrum. or I'm not a racist. It's right. people of all kinds often do racist things. Yeah, I, th- I think Danvers just has a, f- a few a few racist things that she she has to deal with. Yeah. Um, while also having this trauma response. I think yeah. it, it can be both. It's both. They're not Absolutely. mutually exclusive. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's, it's a layered complex character, right? We yeah. see, come, let's make some mac and cheese. She's not racist to the little girl who's mm-hmm. clearly uh, has some Anupiak in her. She, she treats her, you know, as any mother would want to have their child treated. Right. 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 She's not racist. She has an Anupiak friend. <laughs> Well played, sir. Well played. All right, David. I'm going to pass you Doove's comment because Final. my throat okay. is hurting. Got it. Well, Loremaster um, Stu, a.k.a. Doove71, wrote in an email. It says, hi, David. Hi, John. Well, what a way to kick off 2024. It's been great to have some premium quality drama to chew on. And, oh, boy, True Detective Night Country is the kind of show that requires gnawing at the bone, let alone chewing. I've just been able to finish a mammoth opening episode of the podcast, but I have watched both episodes of the show. Uh, so have um, had a hectic week professionally. Thought I'd get some feedback in before we get a chance to listen to your episode two breakdown. So he continues, I thought I would give you in the parlance of the kids the vibe. For context, I'm like David, a Gen Xer. So the whole isolated Arctic community base is totally in my conscious. I've been really looking forward to the show as much as I'm a nerd for Ice Station Zebra, The Thing, The Terror, 30 Days of Night type of scenarios. It also uh, is a great juxtaposition from season one, which really leaned hard into the whole Southern Gothic vibe. And now we've got the, the cold Northern Arctic vibe. Some points from episode one for context. When I served in the military, I did a tour in the Falkland Islands which is way, way down south, close to Antarctica. So it too has long days in the summer and long nights in the winter, similar to Iceland. Isolated communities have very insular ways of operating. And when we always joked that the Islanders were very 1950s in their attitudes and cultures, this is what I imagine the Ennis community is like, roughly 20 to 30 years uh, behind the leading, uh, you know, other places of bigger culture um, and with those attitudes and, and behaviors. Thoughts there, John, on that? I mean, it's great to have firsthand experience of, of places like this. I think there's no replacement for firsthand experience mm-hmm. when it comes to things like this. So I, I'm loving that you're bringing all of this, you know, firsthand eyewitness stuff to It'd the be podcast. Interesting. To know if that, that I don't want to say lag, because I don't want to put it into a sort of a, well, we're more advanced and you're less advanced. It's just like there's, you know, moving at different speeds and different rates. And I don't wonder if with the internet and satellite television and, and all of this kind of stuff, if that disparity in, in um, attitude, the, the, the time shift of attitudes is not if that gap hasn't closed and things are a little bit yeah, it depends. More it depends, right? Because not everywhere has fiber optic internet no. and low cost internet. Even right. if places have, I think most places in the world now have access to some internet, but that doesn't mean that everyone who lives there does. But everybody's pretty much got access to satellite television, and you can so you can watch a lot of culture. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you, it's going to be you active. call television culture. 
You call cable <laughs> culture. Saying you <laughs> you you can see shows and news and commentary and creativity being beamed into your eyeballs. You call the news culture? I'm just kidding. I'm just messing with you. Well, but. I'm not doing the I'm not talking yeah, anyway. Yeah, you now you're just being silly and saying stuff. <laughs> it's getting late. It's getting it late, is. so I have to I have to keep it, it lively it a little bit. Hey, if you've you've hung in this long on a, on a podcast, you're a you're a trooper. You get it. This plays a part in how I feel Liz Danvers is being portrayed. John bounced on how she has to Sherlock stuff to the deputies, but if we take it that Ennis is indeed very conservative, very insular. We can assume that having a strong female leader in authority is not comfortable for the men, but also we have many examples where female leaders constantly have to justify themselves in their positions that men wouldn't have to do. True, right? Well, like, I'm, I'm going to push back on that. I, I did actually sure. read this part uh, ahead of time, and I and I want to push back on that a little bit and just say she's not doing that in front of Hank, someone who's actually someone that she would need to impress. She's doing it in front of Peter, who already looks up to her. So mm-hmm. I don't I don't I think that it is genuinely her process. I don't think she's putting on a show. But I think I where I would agree a little bit here is she's had to maybe push all her career to, you know, to to actually, you know, get to where she has. And so now it's sort of become second nature. I mean, you know, maybe she doesn't mm-hmm. even think about it in that boss type of relationship, right? Regardless of her trauma issues. You okay. Know, so. All right. So that uh, my feeling is that Danvers is always having to demonstrate her competency has to work extra hard to maintain her authority. My headcanon on the relationship within the police departments are very tied to Hank Pryor having been passed over for a promotion when Danvers was brought in. And this is fed to his I don't give a shit attitude. I think I think we've agreed on that. That that seems to be accurate. I do love Jodie Foster's portrayal of Danvers, though, and I couldn't help but chuckle in the line in episode two at the ice rink. Where uh, Dervla Kirwin's character stated, "Everyone effing hates you." Danvers is a tough person to like. Uh, Danvers is a tough person to like. Respect, yes, but like? Question mark. Stu continues. I'm laying down some internet points here, purely based on these first two episodes. I've been wondering if the mystery of the Salal Station is a MacGuffin to enable establishing. A link back to the murder of Annie Kay. Yeah. So we were talking about this before. Like, just because things are happening doesn't mean that they're connected. There's definitely some weird AF stuff going down with the deaths of the scientists, but it made me recall how a show from about eight years ago in the UK uh, uh, called Fortitude, everybody, I'll just pause here, everybody and their dog is talking about Fortitude. Everybody's calling this show out as being really parallel to what Lopez has, um, has created here. So no doubt that there, she took some inspiration. Uh, it too was set in the Arctic and had a whole twin peaks, cosmic weirdness vibe going on and had elements of straight up horror. The explanation of what was causing the events in that show has given me pause for thought around the tragedy of the station occupants and true detective. However, I could be way off base and entering Markley territory here. But that is the fun of the mystery box show, isn't it? So Listen, Markley is a false connection. We, just, we discovered that in, in foundation season two. Just, yeah, just enjoy your Markleys. You, yes, I, exactly. Look, we'll po- we'll make fun of you about them later. But, yeah. Yeah. But don't, don't now, think we're not going to make fun of them. Cherish. <laughs> Cherish your mark, please. It goes right to the thing that our brains are primed for. Our brains are are primed to find patterns and meaning, 
right? Oh, is that thing going to attack me? If I eat it, am I going to get sick? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, oh, the the stars, the the rain, you know, like all of this stuff, our brains are designed for this, for pattern finding as a mechanism of survival. So uh, when a Markley pops up, boy, you know, it's, it's, it's a ch- tasty, juicy morsel for our brains to sink our little teeth into. Yeah. Loving the little callbacks in true de- uh, to True Detective Season 1, which ranks very highly in some of my all-time TV shows. And it's a shame in some ways the show is probably a Pukila plus 11. I don't know. <laughs> I was yeah, thinking I think about this. Plus three, I would think. It's more implied violence than actual. It has I mean, the only There's blow some gore, that has though. been... Sh- it's in the bodies. So... Yeah. You want to seen- send her a DM? Hey, Marilyn, how do you feel about corpses? <laughs> exactly. Frozen corpses falling out in the nice ring. It's, it's, yeah. I don't know that it's a, I don't know where it would scale on the Pequila. We have to talk to her about that. We'll see. Oh, um, and, and uh, frostbitten bodies being yes. reanimated by spirits. How Horror. do you feel about that, Marilyn? Yeah, there you go. Good question. <laughs> Uh, Stu says, I would imagine she would have some great insights into the folkloric aspects of this and true detective series in general that I agree with. So it'd be interesting if we could convince her to, to watch this. But Listen, we'll- I could hear Marilyn talk about anything. So, uh, <laughs> Fair enough. yeah, I mean, for sure. I, I, I heard wanna... her record her first podcast. The, the new podcast. That's very exciting. I'm, I'm jealous you got to go. I had, I had to head to work, but, um, yeah, I'm excited Coming to soon. hear it. Yeah, we're 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 getting all our ducks in a row, and when we are ready to go, everybody will get a nice uh, uh, little sort of twenty minute interview with her, uh, setting it all up. Anyway, uh, Stu continues concludes. Thanks again for starting the year off with another great deep dive pod series. These dark and wet Monday nights are meant for relaxing on the sofa with Mrs. Do for some great drama. Last year was The Last of Us, and now it's True Detective. Cheers, guys, Stu. Yeah, HBO's doing the January thing, aren't they? It's, it's it's a great. I just hope they can keep uh keep it rolling. You know, yeah. I would love like in the ebb and flow of of TV content, you know, heavy hard-hitting shows versus sort of light shows. Mm-hmm. I would love like maybe two heavy HBO dramas a year. That just Well, mm-hmm. we're going to get House of the Dragon right later, right? Yeah. So that I guess that yeah. would tick that box. And then maybe The Last of Us early in the year. Maybe we'll right. get Andor next year and which is not can hbl I, can i tell anyway. you my i know i know but uh can i tell you and or possible news sure sure is uh who was can we we'll, we'll talk about this more too on our our rogue one podcast coming okay uh who but anyway drop drop what you got the very brutal member of the heist crew um the oh uh skeen no 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 Macarac? the woman Oh, 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 uh, uh, yes, I can see her face. Uh, I'm blanking on her name. But yeah, the, the one who's who's cold-blooded. Um, yeah, it'll come to me later when we get off the recording. It's, uh... Um, I don't have a detective note. I don't have an online journal for Okay, Andor. Cinta. Cinta, that's it. Cinta. You're right. That's it. So she, it turns out, um, and this is going to be a little bit of a Doctor Who spoiler okay. for casting... <laughs> <laughs> she has been cast as the next companion for this doctor. Oh, so I think they're probably either done or close to done filming and or if she's signing on to Doctor Who. OK, so, so that's doctor a regular Who's... gig, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's a, have they started filming yet? So they it... yeah, they're so they're filming season two right now. No, no, I meant Doctor Who. 
yeah, they're filming Doctor Who season two of the new uh, whatever Who. season. Yeah, whatever season this is of what version of what. Yeah, yeah. It's well, it's, it's like easy. season fifteen, but also two. Right? It's, is this new New thing. Who? It's or new New it? Who. There's yeah. there's actually a thing in Doctor Who where they call it New New York. There's a there's a new city called New New York. Okay, and so people are calling it New New Who. Are they really? I just made that up. Yeah, no, that's a real okay. thing. That's right. that's happening right now. All right, very good. All right. All right, that wraps up for our feedback. Thanks, everyone. Please uh, send in your thoughts, your theories, your uh, tinfoil hat best guesses at stuff. Uh, we love to hear it all. It, it's a lot more fun when we've got uh, engagement, so don't hesitate. Cool. David, it's been another long one. 90 minutes you told me. <laughs> you lie. <laughs> you lie, sir. How, we just can't pass up so many details. And I, there were so many things that I just didn't even talk about. I know I because halfway through, I was like, man, we got to keep going. Yeah. All right. So let's talk very quickly about our, our Patreon and our programming. Really quick, we've mentioned we have a Patreon. It's a lovely place. We get early ad-free podcasts out. We get second breakfast exclusive podcasts, which is where we talk about our life and we take feedback and we talk about a breakfast food and we review a movie very briefly. We do a lot of fun stuff on it. Uh, and we also have Shireside Chats I've brought back. We're finally we're finally getting some episodes about episodes about the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien back up and running. So plenty of exclusive content coming down the line. Plus, you get David's Detective Journal and you get his his lovely notes about this show and the show tracker, which uh, is a curated list of television and movies that our community may be interested in. And you can look at it in a timeline view and you can look up details of the show. It's all compact and, and really nicely presented. And uh, a new version, or, uh, not a new version, but a new view that we just discovered was you can actually look at it by timeline, by platform. So you could actually plan your streaming strategy. So if you're a person who likes to churn your memberships, you know, mm. oh, I'm going to, you know, unsubscribe Netflix for a couple of months and I'm going to go over to Disney for a couple of months to catch a couple of shows. You can actually plan it out a little bit using the uh, the show tracker. There's a special oh, view that don't tell the streamers out. this. They're going to treat you like the people <laughs> who come for teach us. you how to scam like the airline. Do you know about this whole right. thing? Yeah, about, yeah, yeah. Like, I heard about this. Yeah, you you book the the layover and you only, and you get off at the layover. And apparently, this is not allowed. Actually, this is like right. against policy. I don't know if it's illegal. So this is not my advice to do it. I'm just saying that's what you're doing here for streaming. But I don't <laughs> I don't think there's any laws against helping no. people. Manage your streaming bills. Exactly. Anyway, good stuff. And starts at three bucks a month. Really easy to get into. Uh, Join us. Join us. It's a fun time. You can also join us on Discord. That's another fun time. You don't need to be a patron for that. And uh, we got new server boosters, Gnarls and Aaron K, uh, who we already had Opus and the Machine. And I, I guess I'm also a server booster. Yes, you're also you, a you put me booster. on the list, but I, I, I just do this because I it's my server. OK, <laughs> um, it's really fun. And again, you don't have to be a patron to do it. You can just come chat with us. So check those show notes if you want to join in on the conversation. David, tell me about our affiliates and what's coming with us. Yeah, so we've got a couple of affiliate podcasts that we uh, work with. Uh, Properly Howard Movie Review that Steve and Anthony, you might know Steve from Electric Bookaloo. Um, they're on a little break right now. Anthony's got some uh, work stuff going on. But as soon as we get word on Severance Season 2, both 
uh, us, you and me, and Steve and Anthony, properly Howard, we're going to do a four-person week-to-week review of Severance Season 2. So we're just waiting for that, uh, and that'll be a lot of fun. We've already set up the feed. Steve and Anthony have already uh, done a whole Season 1 uh, rewatch and podcast. So those are all there available for you, but normally properly Howard movie review does, uh, they look at old movies and, and have a lot of fun with them. They're, those guys are a hoot over on the wool shift dust feed, which is Alicia's feed. Uh, she, I think they just, uh, released the silo book podcast on her Patreon. So, uh, that's cool. And, uh, I know she's getting ready for some more Dune stuff. And then I believe she's also getting ready for a three body problem on Netflix. So keep an ear out for her. She and I are also going to do something on the Oscars. So that's going to be kind of a fun thing. Stay tuned for news about that. And then not an official announcement, just a kind of a whispered announcement. Marilyn's got something cooking. The first episode's in the can. As soon as it's ready, we'll make an announcement, but uh, stand by for that. Cool. John, what's up uh, for our schedule in the next coming months? Well, we've got plenty coming. We've got more True Detective. You guys just did What If Season 2 and Echo on the MC Universe feed. We just did a Fargo Season 5 wrap-up. That was really great. If you like True Detective, you're going to like Fargo. Yeah. We've got Rogue One coming. We're going to be talking about Rogue One on the Star Wars feed. You already kind of talked about that earlier. Yeah, and then uh, next month is going to be A New Hope. So we're watching this in story order. So mm-hmm. uh, that's going to be fun. Look for a live watch date in February. Yeah. Then, of course, we have Final Final Fantasy VII remake coming in February. Uh, because the new Final Fantasy game, which is Final Fantasy VII Rebirth, is coming out at the end of February. We want everybody to be prepped. So Brennan and I are going to record a podcast soon on the first game. Make sure to get your feedback in for that. We we very rarely get Lorehounds play feedback because it's not tied to something very topical. But I hope that people will write in for this one because there's there's a lot of hype for the new game and it's a really great game. Uh, we have Earthsea and Silmarillion stories coming back for February, as we usually do. Earthsea took a break in January, but it's back and better than ever with the post Hanu nonsense i think we're starting with dragonfly right correct yeah dragonfly and then the other wind sort of as a uh, all connected yep cool master uh, of the air you're also yes. going to talk about with brandon yes brandon and i are going to do a two-part podcast we're going to do one episode to cover episodes one and two and then we're going to have a podcast at the end of the season. It's a nine episode run. We got access to screeners. So we're going to uh, kind of run ahead of everybody else. It's not really a week to week kind of show because it's historical fiction. It's sort of, you know, we kind of know what happens. Or they're weaving around historical As I like events. to say, we know who won the war. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, but you know, it's a, it's an interesting show. Uh, it's got its pluses, its minuses, but I think it's worthwhile talking about. So we're going to get that recorded and out for the premiere of, of that, which is, uh, imminent. Cool. All right. I think, uh, we can chat on a future podcast or check out second breakfast. If you want to hear all the stuff that we're considering for the year, you know, all the, all the things going off our head, but we've got plenty of big coverage planned this year. So stay on this feed and you will get that for now. We need to thank our Patreon lore masters. They are. Samarsh- oh, oh, wait. Oh, 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 I think after you, me. sir. Samarshan, Mark H, Michael G, Michelle E, David W, Brian P, Nick W, SC, Peter O H, Bettina W, 
who we heard from earlier today, Adam S, Nancy M, Duve 71, who we also heard from, Brian8063, who is one of our Discord moderators that we call uh, Duna Dan, Frederick H, Sarah L, Gara C, Eric F, Matthew M, Sarah M, DJ Miwa, Andra B, Kwong Yu, Deadeye Jedi Bob, Nathan T, Alex V, Aaron T, Sub-Zero, Aaron K, another Duna Dan, Dally V21, Gnarls, and always the last. <laughs> you got me with that one. Yeah, good. You got me that with was that, your Gnarls. setup. That was funny. And the last shall be first, Adrian, who is a special request. We got we got these people calling in saying, oh, I want you to say my name this way, and I want to be the last. So we're Now say my it. name while you're dancing. You know, it's, it's going to be some dancing stupid. and a jig. Yes. On your desk. Yeah. Thank you all so very much for your support. It means a lot to us. It means a lot to our co-hosts. It uh, helps keep the lights on over here. And it's just a great vote of confidence for as we continue to do this crazy podcasting thing. Cool. So. All right, David. Fun times Two tonight. and a half hours later. <laughs> it's an hour overrun. I know. <laughs> that's, I know. That's about average. We're on. Well. Four. That's all right. We're only two and a half times the length of the actual episode. So <laughs> I will see you next week for more fun with our besties, Danvers and Navarro. See you then. The Lorehounds podcast is produced and published by The Lorehounds. You can send questions and feedback and voicemails at thelorehounds.com slash contact. Get early and ad-free access to all Lorehounds podcasts at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. Any opinions stated are ours personally and do not reflect the opinion of or belong to any employers or other entities. Thanks for listening. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the fourth be with you all, all month and beyond.